Hello, this is Samuel from the back page. We are taking a week off this week, but we have a little treat for you on the free feed. This is an episode we recorded last July with Rich Stanton, a favourite guest of the show. This is the best Metal Gear moments. I think there's 25 of them in total, but either way, there's a lot of Metal Gear chat in this episode. If you picked up that Metal Gear Solid collection this year, or you're just a fan of the series, hopefully you'll get a lot out of this. If you like this and enjoy the work we do, this is something we made for the XL tier on Patreon, patreon.com slash backpagepod, £4.50 a month to support us, and there are 40 XL and XXL episodes to enjoy on there, so plenty of extra stuff if you enjoy the back page and you want to listen to a bit more of it. So uh, yeah, I think it's one of our best episodes. Enjoy! Hello and welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Robertson, joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, I say the back page, it's the back page XL. We are behind a paywall and we have smuggled someone back here with us. Rich Stanton, would you like to reintroduce yourself? Well, I did I did just introduce you, but still, go ahead. <laughs> yes, hello. What are all these piles of dollar bills around me? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, we have uh, spent 40 British pounds to bring, uh, bring Rich back onto the podcast. We want to have Rich back on for ages. This episode is a top 25 Metal Gear moments. We couldn't do them without Rich. We, we always knew that. We wanted to get him and we got him. So we're very grateful to have you, Rich. How are things going? Uh, very, very, very well. I'm, I'm nonplussed you've kind of uh, mentioned how low my fees can be for the right people. <laughs> I feel like we should have done 40 moments, so it's like a pound a moment. <laughs> yeah, I Kojima I mean, wouldn't have boasted about that on Twitter, if would he? There'll now be a computer voice edited over the top of it that will say, £500. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We've paid you amount redacted. Very much a mate's rate situation going on here, so I assure you Rich is worth a lot more than £40, um, but... Uh, you'll have to negotiate that privately with him. Um, so yeah, um, <laughs> how are things going on Piece of Gamer these days, Rich? Uh, are you enjoying the news beat? Oh yeah, very very much so. Um, as as uh, you saw, because I DM'd you it earlier, there was some fun times with Yuji Naka today, who's, uh, I don't know, maybe maybe it's a function of him coming back to prominence thanks to the back page pod, but uh, <laughs> he's, he's been very, very, uh, shall we say, obstreperous and aggressive recently. And... Um, <laughs> His latest little wheeze, he's been going off on Square Enix for a couple of months now since April. Uh, I should say, little wheeze is somewhat underselling it. Um, He (laughs) sued Square Enix after a game he was working on kind of turned out a disaster, and they seem to have kind of shanghaied him off it by means fair or foul. He sued them, they sued him back. Whatever the settlement was, he can now talk about it, and boy, is he talking about it. Like, he's just going for them. And then today, this kind of bizarre Stalin-esque moment from the creator of Sonic. Uh, there was a photo of the Knights announcement, like when they announced they were making it for Saturn, not the release. And he tweeted out a photo to celebrate this that had Naoto Oshima in it, who is the co-creator of Sonic and was the designer and director for Knights. And he's just... He's just blocked the guy out. Like, there's just this big block around where Oshima should be in the photo. <laughs> it's and a real Microsoft Paint job. <laughs> it really is. And I say this as someone who loves a Microsoft Paint job. Um, so, yeah, there's some very odd stuff going on in Nakaland. You know, some of the uh, some of the stuff you've talked about in the pod seemed ludicrous to me. But now maybe he will turn up in Bath. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's quite the thing to see because you often see games journalists in fighting on Twitter and think, oh, well, is that a little bit embarrassing? But then you, when you see, you know, the creator of Sonic, who's like, what, in his 50s? Um, actually like erasing someone from a 30 year old photograph you're like well that is a level of pettiness i aspire to frankly and i got more fun out of that tweet than i have any of his games (laughs) (laughs) i don't know that he's exposed as a petty sob he's uh he's on the castle approval list yeah absolutely (laughs) yeah he's just one of us yeah so thanks so so much coming back on rich and we like i say we put you behind a paywall here to talk about metal gear again i promise you we will have you on for non-metal gear episodes after this um so yeah we we do regard you as more than just a resource for that we also want to talk about god of war later this year for example so uh we'll uh, we'll want to have you on for that if you've got the time so um yeah I, i suppose like um to kind of go back to it then we uh, when we had Rich on last, we talked about Metal Gear Solid 2 to mark that game's 20th anniversary. In this episode, we've got 25 moments from across the entire Metal Gear series. Um, Rich has thrown a few in for Peace Walker, which is a game that me and Matthew don't know that well, and um, has provided a sense check on the moments that I already had in there, which I think has resulted in quite a good list. So um, I guess to kick us off, um, Rich, do you remember what drew you to Metal Gear in the first place? Uh, I spoke a little bit about this when you had me on last time, so I don't want to repeat myself too much, but I suppose you could credit games magazines rather than the game itself, you know? Like, I I watched Metal Gear in development for months and months before I played it. Official PlayStation magazine, uh, I think its most successful issue ever, is still the one that had the Metal Gear Solid demo on the front, and because of that, you know, they covered it kind of obsessively up to the point of release. You know, by the time the game came out, I couldn't have been any more hyped for it. And as we all know, there are games that you're on the hype train for and they arrive and it's like, eh, it's maybe a seven. Metal Gear Solid really lived up to the hype. I was on board from that point and I, w- I would say my, you know, my, my deeper obsessions began around the time of Metal Gear 3, uh, Metal Gear Solid 3. That's when I, like, really got into the series in a big way. Yeah, I think for me, it, it sort of peaked around Metal Gear Solid 2 because I had a friend who had Metal Gear Solid, but I didn't have an original PlayStation. So I did play it around his house, but then never replayed it. So it kind of like um, the mythology of it grew in my head. And then Metal Gear Solid 2, it turns out, which I bought on PS2 when it came out, is the perfect game to um, revisit the original Metal Gear Solid with an eye of um, you know regarding it as a piece of mythology, really, because the second game is all about the, uh, the first game in a lot of ways. So... Um, I felt like I mirrored that quite nicely in my play experience of it by not owning that first game for a long time. But then, like you, I kind of um, became um, enamoured once more with uh, Metal Gear Solid 3, which um, ditched a lot of the baggage that 2 had. Um, Matthew, how about you? We may, we may have um, told this on the previous episode, because I don't, I don't remember, because it was about eight months ago and I'm very tired. But um, you and Metal <laughs> Gear, what's the, the origin story there? Again, reading about it in Games Master, didn't have a PlayStation, didn't have access to it. I felt like I could probably have conned someone into believing that I had played through it because I read about it so comprehensively, like walkthroughs, and I just, you know, I was just like devouring how kind of weird it sounded and mouthing off in the playground about, you know, how disappointing there was so little on disc two of the first game (laughs) without (laughs) having played it and just recycling all these sort of opinions um, that I stole from Mags. Um, Didn't eventually played it on the PC port. I think I've always come to them late. I don't think there's a single Metal Gear game apart from five um, that I've played at the time of release um, just because I've been outside of the the PlayStation zone. So, yeah, late to the party, but semi-obsessed. Yeah, it's it's interesting the kind of um, 
you know, and I, I guess it's, it still exists in a sense, but not like it did. This is obviously an old man yells at cloud moment, but um, the way you used to vicariously experience a lot of games um, before you experienced them, and then even when they were out, you know, because it was like you, you couldn't buy every game and they weren't as accessible as they are now, never mind free half the time. And Metal Gear was just always such a perfect game for that in terms of... Um, you know, just the moments that writers could pick out and they made it seem kind of so interesting and so above what, you know, you have to remember the kind of context of uh, what this game was coming out into. Like, you know, <laughs> Resident Evil is probably the best other example of a 3D action game, um, which is very, very different to Metal Gear, not as fast paced as Metal Gear. Um, and everything else on that system, like, there's some real, real dreck. Like, I think you can play Metal Gear Solid now and it still kind of holds up okay. You know, you have mm. to meet it halfway, but it's still a kind of decent experience. Like, if you play, like, you know, another very well thought of game, Legacy of Kane, Soul Reaver. I loved that game at the time. If you played that game now, it's awful. Like, it, it stinks. <laughs> um, and it's kind of like... <laughs> yeah, the, the, there's this weird... Um, mythology that builds around certain games I find and I certainly found that with Metal Gear Solid long before I ever played it I had the sense of having played it um, and I kind mm. of almost knew the experience I was expecting in a weird way I mean there were still surprises in there but I knew a lot of what I was going to get I think the original Metal Gear Solid like ages so well because the mechanics are a lot simpler than they are in two and three like it's trying to simulate less and it's kind of it's basically built around playing with a d-pad rather than an analog stick and so it doesn't overcomplicate itself i always think it's a bit like pac-man um you know pac-man is enduring because it has that absolutely brilliant you know you chase me then i'll chase you mechanic you know it's constantly switching and to me metal gear solid feels very much like that you know it is kind of arcadey in that sense it is oh no i'm spotted i'll run away i'll hide behind this box i'll get here then they they go away and then you come out again to kind of chase around them um and i think that that kind of table flipping mechanic if you like is just such a good fit for games like there are so many games made around that kind of you're the hunter now. You're the hunted thing. Yeah, that's a that's a great comparison. We'll have to have you back on for top Pac-Man moments. I which, could actually um... do that. I love Pac-Man. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, good stuff. Uh, so, Rich, I'm, I'm kind of aware of your broader takes on the Metal Gear series, so I am excited to get to get into it because I read your series of excellent Eurogamer retrospectives that you did on the series. But um, the spin-offs, I would love to know what you think of some of the spin-offs. So, um, where do you sort of stand on these? Do you have a few favourites? Some that you're less keen on? Oh yeah, for sure. There are some that are really pretty great, I would say. I think one of the slightly odd things is most of the spin-offs are on PSP, and he kind of has two shots at them. Um, and what, one of the slightly ambiguous things about the spin-offs is, are they core Metal Gear lore? Or are they, you know, just side <laughs> stories? And Kojima's never kind of been completely explicit about this, even though he's heavily involved in all of them. Like, they're all Kojima Productions games. I guess the first major spin-off is uh, the VR missions, which, you know, is pretty self-explanatory. It's uh, it's a stopgap title. They knew Metal Gear Solid 2 wasn't going to be on PS2, so they made a bunch of extra VR missions for the original. Um, I do think you get your money's worth. It's pretty good, but, like, yeah, I mean, these days that would be DLC, and it's, it's you know, it is what it is, but it's unremarkable. Then you get Ghost Babel on the Game Boy Color, I think it's 2000 or 2001. Uh, this is one of those games that will not turn up on uh, eBay Games Court, because it costs a bomb now. 
I don't know how much it is, but like the last time I looked, it was about 60 or 70 quid. That is really good. And I couldn't possibly suggest any means by which your listeners might be able to play it without paying that <laughs> amount of money. Um, then they're all kind of on the PSP and you get you get two main strains until Peace Walker. You get Portable Ops, which is Sony's going, you know, like the pitch for the PlayStation Portable, it's in the name. Like, unlike Nintendo's devices, which always had very, you know, small form factor, handheld focused software, Sony wanted PlayStation home games on the portable. So Grand Theft Auto, Metal Gear Solid, all their big, you know, you you get the God of War titles on there later. Um, they're, they're still doing it when Vita comes out with Uncharted. But anyway, mm. Portable Ops is the, the Metal Gear game, initially at least. That later has a version called Portable Ops Plus, I think like two years later or something, which is much, much better. Portable Ops introduces some stuff that is going to become key to the series. So while we're still playing Metal Gear 2 and Metal Gear 3, Portable Ops is introducing the notion of you building an army. So in Portable Ops, you capture enemy soldiers, uh, but he hasn't invented the Fulton yet, which we may come to later. So in that game, you knock out the enemies and you literally drag them back through the level. And it's the same pace as you drag enemies in Metal Gear all the time. So you can imagine, like, just what a nightmare this is. Um, it's not a good mechanic at all. But there's an idea there that is going to become really, really important for what the series is. Then you've got the Metal Gear Acid series. Um, pretty much the same again. Metal Gear Acid comes out. It's pretty good. Then Metal Gear Acid 2 comes out, which is kind of just a remade Metal Gear Acid and is so much better than it like that's that's a great game and the whole idea with that is it kind of plays out like a turn-based metal gear and then the battles themselves are card battles it's got you know i th- I think in japan there were some dedicated metal gear card games as well on phones that tied into this beautiful looking game metal gear acid 2 as well quite different art- uh, uh, you know visually from the other other games of the series yeah yeah it's it's a gorgeous gorgeous game and uh if you want to try it definitely get the second one because it's basically got everything the first one has and is a lot better then there, there are a couple of spin-offs that are like so minor it's almost not worth talking about like did you ever play the the iphone metal gear 4 one where it's oh, like no. a target practice. Yeah, yeah. Basically, it's just a kind of crappy iPhone shooting game. And because it's made by Kojima Productions, it has these kind of, you know, lore links to the main series and some interest for the fans. But it's not a great game. Um, and they're the, they're the ones I don't like. Um, when it's Metal Gear Acid or Portable Ops Plus and there's a good game in there, um, I'm very much into it. And yeah, I believe there's a couple of Japanese mobile titles that never made it over here that I don't really know anything about. Um, and Peace Walker, I don't really consider a spin-off, uh, which I guess leads us to, sorry for going on so long here, but uh, no, no, Sur- Survive, which is um, kind of the horrible end of um, the Kojima arc, I think, because even though Kojima's not strictly involved with it, it was an idea he'd touted for the series before. Um, you know, whether jokingly or not, he had mentioned in interviews this idea of kind of, you know, making a kind of zombie Metal Gear game, um, which is what they did. Uh, when it came out, I think it was uh, on a hiding to nothing. Um, you know, people had decided this game was going to be terrible before it ever appeared. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's great. Um, I don't think it's some undiscovered gem. I do think it's pretty good. Um, especially now that 
when it came out, it was quite a hardcore survival game. It was quite hard. Um, mm. And you can call the Metal Gear series a lot of things, but I don't think they're that hard. Like, I think most average players can complete them because um, they've got so many fail-safes built in for players. Survive was really quite hard. If you play it now, it's a lot easier. And if you play it with a couple of mates, it's as much fun as any other survival game with mechanics that are, you know, straight out of the Phantom Pain, so feel great. Uh, mm. So it's it's a really weird one. Like, if you had a couple of Metal Gear liking mates who were willing to play Survive with you at the same time, uh, especially now that it's been rebalanced, I think you'd have a great time. Um, and there's some really weird stuff in that game as well. You know, it leans into the kind of uh, bizarre, otherworldly stuff that Kojima sometimes goes into. Uh, you know, like at the end of the Phantom Pain, your Fultons can become wormholes, uh, which is the whole start of this game. Like, basically, you know, all of the Metal Gear 5 soldiers get sucked through one of these wormholes <laughs> into zombie dimension. So, yeah, Survive um, is it's a weird one. It's an odd one. I can only look at it now with kind of sadness because uh, Konami, in a wider sense, has moved on to the Unreal Engine now. All of its in-house titles are going to be made on that. And it put so much time and money into developing the Fox engine. And the Fox engine was intended to be used for, you know, the the then next-gen Metal Gears, which were Ground Zeroes and uh, Five. Um, it was going to be used for the Silent Hill reboot. It was going to be used for Pro Evolution Soccer, as it was then. Um, mm. And it was used for Survive, but now the, the Fox engine is dead. Um, and there are no continues, my friend. So... <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I look on Survive with some sadness now. Not enough sadness to put it in the top moments. That's a bit of a spoiler, sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. Waiting for them to debut the XOF engine. Uh, really. um, <laughs> no one fun, will notice a thing. <laughs> um, Matthew, how about you in the spin-off? So, Rich, I really appreciate the, the potted history there. That's all of them apart from Revengeance, which I definitely want to quiz you on as we get into Oh uh, my god, how did I forget that? <laughs> no, no, we can come to that when we get to um, one of the moments mm -hmm. in this list, which would be nice. But um, Matthew, how about you? Did any of these cross paths with you? Um, did you go uh, outside the wider series to, to track some of these down? Not really. At times I wish I had when I was trying to kind of pass some bits of deep lore, when, you know, particularly when I was working on OXM and we were trying to you know, write deeper features than everyone else. Or uh, I did a bit of like production, sort of subbing work on a... A couple of Metal Gear bookazines along the way, and you know you absorb some of it from that. You know, I've always liked the kind of bullshit, kind of expanded universe stuff of this, and so much of that does live in those sort of surrounding games. So yeah, a slight pang of regret, but my PSP got got nicked. So yeah, oh yeah, classic classic anecdote. There. Uh, there, <laughs> um, there is one I forgot to mention as well, which is worth a very quick shout out, which is Snake Eater 3D on 3DS, which I thought was one of the few games on that platform where I actually wanted to use the 3D because uh, mm. crawling through the grass in that is fantastic. I never owned that, but it feels like a curio should have in my 3DS collection for a rainy day. It's really good. I think uh, that highly respected Oregon End gamer gave it 92%. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um did you ever play that one matthew did you play um handheld yeah i played snake? i played a decent chunk of it but yeah like we were in the midst of yeah making nintendo gamer so just having to play so many different things didn't really have time to to replay metal gear solid 3 again the e3 that year before that came out it was really mad in that 
um, Kojima was there promoting Metal Gear Solid 3 DS, and you could, like, I'm pretty sure, like, Neil on Official Nintendo and Gav, like, interviewed, like, didn't know they were going to interview him. They just went to see a demo of it, and it turned out it was like, oh, you've got half an hour with Kojima. <laughs> and they're right. thinking, why the hell did I not sign up for that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, that's uh, that's cool. Um, yeah, it did seem like a bit of a non-event at the time, and I think it's maybe partly because it was quite early on in the... 3DS life cycle, and I guess it yeah. was an old game at that point. So, so that was the second cover of Nintendo Gamer. Okay, that's uh, yeah, nice. Um, okay, cool. So yeah, I, I I echo a lot of what Rich says there. I mean, I I that Game Boy Color game really is worth a worth a try. Um, really kind of slick stealth game, even by today's standards. Definitely riffs on the first two original Metal Gear games, um, but like connects quite nicely to the the feel of the of the uh, Metal Gear Solid on PS One. Um, just really really good. Hopefully they put that on. Nintendo Switch Online at some point because um, it'd be great to revisit it. And yeah, I like the Acid Games too. I'm always a big fan of the preposterous um, cardboard snake eye they shipped with Metal Gear Acid 2 so you could play it in 3D. Very, very silly idea, but extremely Kojima um, fun stuff. So yeah, lastly, before we take a quick break and go, get into the moments, um, I was curious, um, Rich, do you have any hope for a future of Metal Gear without Kojima's involvement? Do you think Metal Gear Survive sort of shows it's, it's an advice to go poking around without that sort of like brain at the center of it or do you think there's there's potential without him it's it's too big not to continue it's konami's biggest selling series um which i was i was quite surprised about i thought um like i think they make more money off Yu-Gi-Oh, um but i think the metal <laughs> gear series has sold more copies than any of their other franchises so you know if you're in the games business are you gonna mothball that um i don't think they are i don't think they can afford to can anyone replace Kojima? I mean, ov- obviously the answer is no, but there's also a world where the answer is yes. Different creators can do different things and they can still be great. I do think Metal Gear will come back. I think the worst thing they could do is um, not not remake the older games. Like, I definitely think they should remake the older games at some point. But I think they should just go and tell the story of a bunch of other characters within that universe. Um, Because I think Kojima, um, and it's something we'll touch on in a few of these moments we're going to talk about. I really think by the end of it, did he start in 86 or 87 with the the arc he ended up with in mind? Absolutely no way in hell. But by the end, he had created quite a satisfying and self-contained arc for that series that kind of... uh, curves back in on itself so i think in that sense like uh i think i think the story of solid snake and big boss is over but i think the series will continue and i think i think it should continue i think there's like a lot there and i think the thing i miss most about metal gear is that it's a series that is is kind of adjacent to the real world and i i've said this about kojima before but it's like you can criticize his highfalutin and more uh, philosophically wanky aspects all you like but I look at him and I see the big budget director that's willing to make a game about Guantanamo I see the big budget director who's willing to take aim at the US invasion of Afghanistan and not not many other AAA series you know have that kind of guts if Metal Gear has a future I think it's in that kind of um, what would you call it contemporary historical fiction as as for Kojima himself like I'd, I'd like to see a uh, a rapprochement of some kind between him and Konami. I, I, you know, he's not going to go back. He's not going to make Metal Gear Six, but it would be nice if, in the future, he was free to 
talk about the series and say nice things about the company that enabled them to make it for 30 years or so. Yeah, I, I sort of echo what you say about um, them uh, remaking them. Um, there's like a an interesting thing with this series where I feel like it's never, people never stop talking about it. It's always, there's an ongoing um, obsession with Metal Gear no matter what. I always see people talking about it, in, even in spite of the fact that the availability of it is quite, quite challenging actually like um it is quite hard to get hold of them unless you're willing to um to go and track down uh you know a, a backwards compatible copy uh, you know of a game from two generations mm. ago yeah it's yeah. xbox 360 isn't it yeah so that was the last time these games were were put anywhere and that was 10 years ago um and there are you know still I, i've talked i've joked about this before but metal gear solid 4 is still only available to play on ps3 for example now i think it belongs there in a lot of ways the ps3 but um it is unusual when you compare it to something like Final Fantasy, where Square Enix is determined to get that every single old entry onto as much um, and many different pieces of hardware as possible. And that's more of, that's a kind of reflection of where Konami's at, I think, more than anything. But still, kind of a shame. Matthew, how about you? Do you have any hope for a future Metal Gear without Kojima's involvement? What 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 aspects do you think are kind of like worth reprising? Because there's a lot of different ways you could go with a a new Metal Gear, isn't it? Is it about a nuclear robot? Is it about real world themes? Is it about a man in a bandana? Like, um, what do you kind of make of all that? You know, while Kojima's fingerprints are obviously all over his games, you know, he also worked with a big team, you know, many of which didn't leave with him and, you know, are still there in some capacity. It's it's more like they have learned from him or he's taught them kind of his sort of design philosophies. Just the idea of more people kind of cooking up Kojima-esque ideas is exciting to me, rather than specifically the narrative beats. You know, I think these are just games with... It's not sort of necessarily, like, deep, deep mechanics, but just so wittily thought through and so completely thought through. They're games where they really have thought of everything, and it's more that kind of approach, you know, that I that, that reached, like, an apex for me in, in Metal Gear Solid Five. I thought, oh, here's a team which just... They just know how to make everything feel good and uh, f- to make, you know, to pack the world with so many sort of mechanical surprises that you kind of come across of your own devising. And the idea of that know how only ever belonging like with Kojima and, you know, now in Death Stranding, I guess, um, is a shame. If anything, like the greedy part of my brain when he splits off is like, well, great, now we're going to get two Kojima quality games uh all the time but obviously that hasn't happened i would almost prefer that the team that was left behind after kashima went tried to make a kind of enhanced version of metal gear solid 5 that added like maybe like one new environment and a bunch of new tools and stuff just because the base was there to kind of like keep building great stealth games um Mm. but like by going the survival route I think they basically ruled out the idea they would ever get to try that, get ever get to try like what a f- their own version of a full fat Metal Gear was. Um, yeah, it's, so yeah, like- it stunned me that they didn't just remake Metal Gear Solid in that engine because it, it's a no brainer as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, you're gonna have to tweak the environments, remake the cutscenes, but like they used that engine for so little and they invested so much <laughs> in it. And I know an engine isn't, you know, the the way that people talk about it in a shorthand term. It's just a bunch of dev tools. But yeah, they had the phantom pain. They could have remade every game in that series in that engine, and I'd have bought them all. I'd have bought them all with glee on my face. <laughs> yeah, and the the thing is, when you look at images of the phantom pain now, it's that's a seven year old game, and it still looks as good as anything released today. And it was so well optimized for all the different bits of hardware. So you know, it ran on PS3 and 360 um still pretty well 
um, and and looked phenomenal on PS4 and Xbox One. So yeah, it's a it's a real shame. It was kind of a it was it was a weird dead end. Okay, great. Well, I think um, that's a good little bit of preamble. So let's take a quick break, then we'll come back with our top twenty five Metal Gear moments. What a thrill with darkness and silence through the night. What a thrill. Searching and I'll melt into you. What a fear in my heart, but you're so supreme. Welcome back to the podcast. So we have 25 Metal Gear moments here. We've put them in a mostly chronological order. There might be a couple of uh, slip ups here or there, but um, we'll go through the entire series a bit by bit. Um, it will function as a kind of like a nice overview of the different games, I think. So um, the first one here, here is one that I selected, which is the um, the Grey Fox reveal and the corridor full of dead soldiers in Metal Gear Solid. So um, the Cyborg Ninja sort of like iconography was like a huge part of what I found appealing initially about Metal Gear uh, Solid. It was seeing that um, uh, Yoshi Shinkawa artwork on the cover of OPM and being like, what the hell is that? I, you know... I, anime hadn't reached me at that point so i'd never seen anything like that before um this very distinctive kind of visual design and i think something that's really underrated about metal gear solid is that it's it's very close to being a horror game much more than the other games are um well the other bit the other games get close but i think this gets closer more frequently and this sequence certainly does that you you see this kind of invisible figure um basically like eviscerating this soldier having killed his entire squad beforehand and there's this kind of like real um, tense build up to that moment, and it's such a he's such a scary, strange figure, Grey Fox. That even though I don't think the origin behind him is that exciting, in fact, I think it deliberately mimics um, a Metal Gear Two um, reveal, um, as a lot of like Metal Gear Solid speaks do. But um, as a mo- as an introduction, I just absolutely love this. Rich, do you kind of have uh, much of a recollection of this? Do you, do you remember the impact this had on you at the time? One of the things Kojima is occasionally very good at is the kind of slow reveal. So when you're in Shadow Moses, obviously nobody else should know you're there but your handlers, but you start getting calls from uh, Deep Throat, obviously named after the Watergate informant. He has one of these, you know, ridiculously over-the-top voices, as uh, everyone in Metal Gear Solid does. I'm looking forward to you reprising your liquid snake impression later. (laughs) Um, You've heard from this other character. You don't yet know it's a cyborg ninja. And, of course, the thing is, you're you're not going to know it's a cyborg ninja for a while. Like, the corridor scene we're talking about is, um, I think, the first time you see him. Mm. Before that, he's chopped off Ocelot's hand, because that's how the Ocelot fight ends. He's chopped off Ocelot's hand, so you know there's... Basically, you know there's someone invisible with a sword running around, but you haven't seen <laughs> it yet. Um, mm. The thing that was striking to me uh, at the time, and kind of still now, is um, the Metal Gear games can be quite unflinching in their depiction of violence. Sometimes you get the kind of balletic stuff, uh, particularly in Revengeance, where everything's cut in neat straight lines. Um, But Kojima is very good at... I don't know if good is the right word to describe this talent, but somebody being impaled on a blade is a fucking horrible thing. Um, (laughs) And he's able to communicate kind of in this corridor the way the blood smears are done like their hands smeared across the wall you can see where the soldiers have kind of been leaning as they've been cut before they collapse i can't Mm. remember how many bodies are there but it, it feels like there are dozens and obviously like 
you're not a killer with a massive arsenal of weapons at this point. Like, you're not capable of killing these soldiers, really. I think you can break their neck and that's about it. So you've suddenly got this weird thing that's been running around. You're supposed to be the stealthy one. You're supposed to be the invisible one. And here's something literally invisible that is just <clears throat> chopping people up. Um, it's, yeah, I, th- I think when you when you said horror, you kind of nail it. Um because Metal Gear is kind of sci-fi horror, you know, one of the things about the mechs is uh, Metal love this. They take a lot of inspiration from Evangelion in the way that they're slightly, uh, they're a mix of robot and human. You know, they feel like they've got meat in them somewhere. And I, I think Kojima is fantastic at the kind of the body horror, if you like, of diamond-tipped exquisite metal cutting through flesh. Um, you know, just the, the horror of that, you know, when... A person's physical being comes up against machinery, and I think this sequence is kind of one of the first kind of demonstrations of that power and kind of using the PlayStation One's graphical power to a more effective and atmospheric end than um, you know just something spectacular looking. I I particularly mm. remember the way the blood smeared on the walls yeah, in this scene. Yeah. It's not a nice place to like revisit later on when you have to go through it like a couple of times. It's just it's unpleasant surroundings um the great fox himself is such a, a a sort of like great melodramatic figure as well where one of the first things he says to you is i've come from another world to do battle with you like um just love that as a ridiculous introduction and like the <laughs> very disconcerting because there's a there's a sense that the, the the what they've done to frank yeager to keep him alive is you know very inhumane and he does this thing where he's kind of like sort of um shaking on the spot basically and just kind of completely kind of um it's hard to describe really but just yeah he keeps, obviously yeah kind of glitching out almost yeah he keeps on shouting at you to hurt him um when you finally end yeah. up in the first fight against him which i think is right after this scene where otacon's hmm. uh otacon's stuck in the locker and another one of kojima's little touches here which i just don't think many game designers would think about is that otacon wets himself out of fear you know you're <laughs> you're pretty scared as a player and then this character you know seeing the kind of invisible monster in front of him uh wets himself and then he's hiding in the cupboard you're fighting gray fox and as you're hitting him you're kind of having the normal player response of great i did some damage to the boss and he's going yes yes snake hit me come on hurt me more yeah yeah that that is weird like there, there have been a lot of other bosses that have kind of pulled this trick since then. But it's like I think because there are other boss fights in this game that are so kind of, uh, you know, fantastical in what they do that the Gray Fox fight almost gets kind of underappreciated because it's a deeply, deeply uncomfortable fight. And it, yeah, like you say, the way he kind of um, spasms on the spot when his electronics seem to go wrong. Uh, yeah, it's it's horrible. It's like something out of a Verhoeven movie. That's uh, yeah, that's um, a great comparison. Uh, Matthew, do you have uh, have much to weigh in on with the with old Grey Fox? You know, this this will come up th- throughout the list. One of the big driving factors for me in these games, you know, are the boss fights and seeing like what monster he sort of serves up next. You know, you know, as grand and as complex and sophisticated as the overarching stories are. You know, I like them on the very basic level of 
you know, each of these games, there's going to be a bit of a madhouse. And um, particularly after you've done Metal Gear Solid 1 and, and you've sort of seen that that is going to be the deal, I think he has, you know, he goes on to have a lot more fun sort of foreshadowing things. He's very good at, like, giving you glimpses of, like, really odd stuff that you, you, you don't really know how it's going to function or what its deal is going to be when you meet it. But you know you are going to meet it. And, um, you know, the bosses in this all, I think, are kind of like the... The, the key kind of beginning of that it would have been very easy to just fill this list with 25 bosses actually um yeah and a, and a bunch of them do come up but uh yeah no. we've tried to be a little bit slative um, not not all of them great fights in and of themselves yeah i would agree with that like the the oslo like, fight in the in this in the first game is 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 just okay really it's very straightforward yeah yeah it's quite gimmicky um i i will say with gray fox um just in terms of a lot of the stuff I was talking about previously, he he has the most brittle death sequence. It, it's again an interesting thing for me with Kojima, where you know you finally find out what the Metal Gear is, what this thing you're supposed to destroy is, and it's this incredibly sophisticated piece of military technology. But the first thing you see it do is crush a man to death against the wall, just using its kind of size and mass to kind of crush the life out of this guy that was once a kind of forbidding boss in the game. Uh, it's Again, it's a horrible sequence. You know, they're using the PS1 uh, in quite a different way, I think, to how a lot of other developers were to, yeah, kind of try and communicate pain and horror. I don't, I don't want to overdo this. Like, this isn't something that was ever going to win an Oscar. But yeah, this... Don't tell Kojima that. Well, he's got his own movie studio now. Did you see that? Mm. Does he? Kojima oh, Productions now has a movie division. That seems mm. unadvised. But, uh, I, 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 sure I completely best. agree. Who's going to go and watch that film? <laughs> Jesus. Uh, I already feel like I've watched four of his films, so uh, yeah. Okay, cool. So that's uh, yeah, that's a great one. We'll definitely talk more about the death of Grey Fox and Metal Gear uh, sort of shortly. But um, the second moment here is definitely one I've sort of put in here. But like, um, I think this moment is brilliant. I wanted to pick something that demonstrates like a bit of design genius that doesn't involve a boss battle. And I absolutely love the moment in Metal Gear Solid where you get in this cargo lift. Um, there's a very slow build up to this. The door is sort of held open for you for whatever reason. You're going up and down these two buildings that you're fighting the Hind D in um, over and over again in, in, in Metal Gear Solid. You, d you do a lot of that. And so you get in this cargo lift and um, it, it's, it stops moving at a certain point, which is strange because it's a cargo lift. It's really heavy. And Snake is the only person in the cargo lift. Otacon calls you and tells you that there were five camo suits that he created and um, he's wearing one. And the other four, he went back to uh, to get um, one of those camo suits to give to Snake, but they were all gone. Yeah, so the four camo suits are missing. Um, and then the weight limit warning goes off in the lift, even though Snake's the only person in there. Snake says to Otacon, but the, the weight limit's like one six, like 650, and I only weigh like 165. So that would have to be like three or four other people in the lift to exceed the limit. <laughs> and then it kind of slowly sort of dawns that like <laughs> there are four soldiers in the lift with you invisible who all kind of like hold you up after that call and Otacon shouts look out snake and then like it's a really straight st simple fight straight afterwards but I just love the the drama of using the sort of like toolbox of things in in Metal Gear's arsenal to create a great little set PC moment like this and I, I always just fondly remember it and I think um hmm. the fact that you see Otacon's face move closer towards the codec when he's screaming look out snake absolutely love it um do either of you have any kind of like recollection of this or is it just me who likes this moment which is possible 
No, I love this bit. Um, and I think it's, uh, I think, I again, it's one of Kojima's skills of, um, I'm, I'm going to make a slightly highfalutin comparison here, but um, at the moment I'm re-watching The West Wing. And one of the things I really love about The West Wing is um, you kind of work out things at the same time as the characters are working them out. You know, the dialogue writers in that show are really able to create that effect. And this scene has that exact feeling where I feel like, I almost made the connections as Snake and Otacon were making them. Like you say, the fight afterwards, you know, the game has a fairly simple kind of melee combat system, so it's just a kind of, you know, bare-knuckle brawl. Um, but that moment of realisation and uh, panic, um, yeah, it's it's kind of like we do tend to focus on the bigger moments with these games for, for obvious reasons. But I think the reason they remain so memorable for so many people is like, Lots of people do play them um, in the same way Matt plays them, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. You know, what's the next great set piece? What's the next big boss? And the fact that they they just seem endlessly imaginative. I don't know if they were Kojima Productions at the, this point. I think that happens after Metal Gear 2, but um, it's just another of those great moments that another game wouldn't necessarily think of, if I can put it that way. Um, and the way it slowly feeds you the information and the way that it dawns on you at the same time as it's dawning on the characters. People think when you talk about Metal Gear Solid as a cinematic game, you're just talking about the cutscenes. And I'm not. This is exactly the kind of thing that I feel is cinematic about it. Like, using those techniques of suspension and understanding where the viewer is, or the player, on the journey, as well as the characters themselves. That's, uh, yeah, that's that's spot on. I think, um, like you say, that because they allow so much build-up there, they do let you as a player fill in the gaps. And, uh, realize that something is amiss um yeah terrific um so third here we've got uh psycho mantis um uh, matthew do you want to talk a bit about this one this feels like one of the the big moments that uh everyone has a sort of take on um were you kind of ever enamored with um how they did this boss fight the actual fight itself is is a little is a little hit and miss but as an actual like character and introduction it's really playful this is like the sort of telekinetic kind of uh, sort of gimp <laughs> I guess it's sort of how you describe him. Uh, yeah. he sort of sort of floats around the room, but he has this very grand introduction where he reads your mind and sort of reads Snake's mind. And then, if you had, I think it's only Konami games on your memory card. Yeah, it's only Konami games. Yeah, he'd be like, mm, "I heard you love to play freaking Castlevania or whatever." And obviously, when they remade this as Twin Snakes on GameCube, he does the same, except he's like, oh, I heard you're very adventurous and you've been playing the, the Legend of Zelda. Hugely <laughs> takes you out at the moment, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Big Doshin the Giant guy, eh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it's, to be fair, I think it's a tiny bit more subtle on the original PlayStation. I think it's something like if you've got a Pro Evo save, he says, mm, I see you like football. Sorry, he's not Yoda. Um, right. <laughs> Yeah, and... yeah, but he says that like I mean, there's literally the whole. It's really shameless in in Twin Snakes. Cause he says, "Oh, you're obviously a big fan of Silicon Knights, <laughs> who are the people who made the port, uh, because you've been playing Eternal Darkness. That if you've got an Eternal Darkness save, they've got like a way bigger chunk of text than like any of the other games. <laughs> That's where um, half the budget went. <laughs> yeah, um, and he makes the controller rumble uh yeah he says Mm. to you put your controller on the floor and i will show you the power of my mind this is probably coming across as a bit apologetic but like rumble was a relatively new feature like on an n64 you had to buy a separate rumble pack for your controller um 
So yeah, it was one of those things where, you know, one of Kojima's good qualities is kind of making as much use of the hardware as he possibly can. I must admit, so because obviously I played this on PC, I've never played this on PlayStation 1 itself. I never completely got my head around the whole swapping the controller thing. So one of you will have to explain that. Oh, um, yeah, so basically like you won't be able to damage him um, unless you switch um, controller ports from 1 to 2, which I guess they couldn't do on PC. Um, so they probably just had to have it as a straightforward boss fight. That's the thing, like, my version of this fight was, yeah, kind of just a fight against <laughs> yeah. a, a weird bloke who chucked chairs a lot. <laughs> yeah, the game does strongly hint to you, like, I think there's like a, it, it kind of, the screen goes blank and there's like a hideo message, Rich, that's like kind of, it's suggesting to you that you need to, that something needs to change. And I think that like, even the colonel calls you. I, th- um, I think if you suggest, fight for yeah. long enough without figuring it out, the colonel eventually figures it out for you and says switch the controller snake um yeah and i think unfortunately this is one of those moments that was slightly spoilered um because it was it was the thing that everyone talked about you know there's this boss who can read your mind and i i do think it still had that effect on me like the the first time you go in and the fight starts and he's kind of pirouetting around in the air going i can read your mind and pictures are flying across the room vases are flying at you um i always thought the pictures in the vases were castlevania references by the way because in the castlevania games you get like you know in the later stages you'll get inanimate objects flying at you but maybe i'm overthinking (laughs) that um i'm pretty sure the the portraits are of nintendo executives and twin snakes i think it's i think it's like a picture of miyamoto that starts like cackling it like reanimates and starts laughing at you god that's terrifying didn't like twilight princess did we yeah i think in fact i think it is i think it's miyamoto and the silly uh dennis oh god that hasn't aged well what's his name <laughs> Dennis, <laughs> dennis Dyer. Dyer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um that probably did seem like a decision that would stand the test of time in 2003 or Shikeru whatever miyamoto is currently airbrushing Dennis Dyack's portrait of the twin snakes. He's seen what Mac <laughs> is up to. He wants a bit of the action. <laughs> cr- crudely with uh, MS Paint. Um, yeah, I think um, this kind of ties into what I was saying about how uh, Metal Gear Solid is like a borderline horror game. This is where it goes into like a, becomes like a full horror game. Essentially, I think the drama of the moment is more impactful than the moment than the boss fight itself. Um, like you say, it is a bloke chucking stuff at you, Matthew. That's actually not in dispute here. Um, but like, um, it's the way he possesses Meryl in, yeah. in this. Um, it's like the way her voice changes to sound like him. She has that slightly weird, fake German voice, um, and then uh, through like a filter. And then um, uh, him possessing Meryl is scary in a, in a whole bunch of ways because at one point he puts the you know gets her to put a gun to her head, and you have to essentially keep Meryl out of danger during all of this. And I think that 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 really adds something if he didn't have Meryl in that situation he would just kind of be a gimmick boss i think but instead it really adds to the drama of the game you've got to um, keep knocking her out because if you don't she yeah. does blow her brains out a side um, note for this i i rewatched a bit of it at lunchtime yeah, it, and it reminded yeah. me of something when i first um, played this this game i didn't i think this was the first time i ever encountered the convention of naming the character and then putting the voice actor underneath. When I first played this, I thought the voice actor's name was the character's like real name. So I thought it was like it's Psychomantis, but at, you know that's what he calls himself. But he's actually called Doug Stone. <laughs> yeah, why are, they call, why are they calling David Hater Snake? Yeah, well, it's all their code names. Yeah, they had fake names in the first one too, didn't they? And then like um, they in the Twin Snakes, I think they added the real names back in. But like um, for whatever reason, maybe it's like a right, oh, like an actors guild thing. But uh, 
Yeah, they all had fake names. There's, in the original there's a real yeah. history of this in the Japanese industry. A lot of programmers, uh, their early work is all under pseudonyms. Like, um, I th- I think Yuji uh, Naka is U2. Uh, Y-U-2. Um, mm. If you look at early Sega games, he that's, that's who the programmer is. Um, so it might be something to do with that, but I may also be bullshitting. No, maybe it is. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not entirely sure. But um, yeah, an interesting relic. Tell you what, something I do question. Do you think many people had a first-hand experience of the reading the memory card Konami games thing? Because it's quite a specific set of games you would need to have had at the time to to get that. Do you think this is a bit of a sort of like um, a, a sort of shared memory, but not many people actually lived it? Am I my am, am I wrong there, Rich? What do you reckon? Oh, I don't know. It's one of those things where it's impossible to say. Like, certainly, this is getting a bit inside baseball, perhaps. But like, one of the things I have to constantly remind myself, uh, just in the day job, is that my knowledge of video games is quite unusual. The vast majority of people who play games aren't, you know, obsessively buying official PlayStation magazine every month, reading everything about Metal Gear Solid they can. A lot of people just bought that game because they like the look of it. Maybe he'd read, you know, a preview or seen it on the telly. So, you know, given given how much it sold, and I don't know, I, I know it was in the millions, but I don't know what its final sales figures are, cause, but it sold a lot. I mean, it's Konami's biggest selling series, and this was the moment where it broke through. I'm sure there were people who had that experience, probably more so in Japan, where at the time Konami's games were much more popular. Like, at that time, they didn't really bring over their Castlevania games so much. I'd imagine there are a few Japanese players who had a, you know, an original experience of it. And we also have to remember, like, Metal Gear Solid isn't Kojima's first game. Like, he'd been doing this kind of, I don't know what you want to call it, fourth wall breaking meta stuff in the likes of Police Knots and Snatcher, you know, before. Maybe not quite as spectacularly and maybe not on the same scale, but, like, he definitely does the Hideo thing in one of those, I think. Um... And the Hideo thing, I guess we should explain because, uh, you know, people listen to this rather than watching it. On old-style CRT televisions, you used to have a video channel. I think it still persists as AV. And you would, uh, when you went to that channel, video would appear in the top right corner in a very specific font. And when the Metal Gear games do the Hideo thing, it is exactly that. And it appears smaller as it would on some of these old style televisions before becoming bigger. So the intention is to make the viewer think they've accidentally switched the channel on their television. And it depends on you noticing that it says video and not video. So it's kind of, I, I think that's pretty witty. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually had forgotten the context of what that was. So I appreciate you explaining it. That's, uh, that's appreciated. Yes, thanks. Um, I am old. <laughs> no, so am I. But I just, uh, I had just, I had just forgotten for whatever reason. Um, okay, so our fourth moment here is the um, boss fight against Metal Gear slash the boss fight against uh, Liquid Snake. So, um, a, a couple of things. So, first of all, it is quite funny in retrospect that like um, McDonald Miller being uh, Liquid Snake is is a big twist because when he first turns up, he's like, "Hi, Snake. This is McDonald Miller," and you're like, "Why does he sound like this?" And then when you when you play him back, you realize how similar the voices are. <laughs> Just so distinctive, uh, Cam Clark's uh, sort of tone. But yeah, so I, I, what I love about this, um, the Metal Gear boss fight, Rich, you kind of alluded to it earlier, is that throughout the whole game, you are told that there's this like walking nuclear ba- battle tank, and you see 
Um, you know, you, you see it stationary, you climb around it a bunch of times, you see it explained to you by Donald Anderson. Um, you know, Snake has this history with these Metal Gears. So um, there is that sense of like, what will it be like when it's actually moving, you're actually fighting in it. And it is it is visually spectacular. Uh, I do love it. And then the fact that you kind of end with this um, sort of one-on-one fist fight with Liquid is also a, a sort of like a great touch. Um, so yeah, it's this kind of like massive level set piece and this kind of like intimate um, sort of fist fight, which I think is a great kind of contrast as like a final boss goes. It is, it's mostly final. There's still a, a weird kind of turret section chase afterwards, but um, this is mostly the end of the game. Do you think that kind of, that's why it kind of works, Rich, that sort of combo? Is there another reason that this finale is so successful? I think it's a great reveal. Um, you know, Japan obviously has a, a long and proud history of great mechs. Um, and the series had only ever been, you know, 2D up to this point. And uh, I suppose you you can only do so much in terms of grandeur with 2D pixel art. I, I, I'm going to regret saying that, am I? I? But uh, there was something to the scale of Metal Gear Rex that I certainly hadn't seen in the game before. I think probably the biggest 3D boss I'd seen in the game was maybe the Tyrant in Resident Evil. Uh, I don't even know if I'm... Yeah, Resident Evil was out by this point. Metal Gear Rex is absolutely huge. It has this introduction to it where it kind of emphasizes the sheer power of the thing. That's the Grey Fox squishing bit I was going on about earlier. And you've spent the whole game running, and now you're kind of faced with this uh, yeah giant thing just firing rockets at you, basically, and you're desperately trying to get in. I think you have to knock out its radar initially in order to get a hit on it. But the the great thing for me is the way it moves. I don't know whether to call it a human or an animalistic aspect to it. Uh, the way that the mechs scream in Metal Gear has always felt very like special to me. Uh, very very visceral, very scary. Not a noise you would expect from a machine. And I think the best boss fights, best kind of climactic boss fights, they tend to be these kind of multi-stage ultimate catharsis affairs where it's like you've been through everything up to this point now you're going to take out the kind of walking nuclear battle tank now your stupid cackling brother you're going to kind of beat the shit out of him on top of it and then you're going to I actually quite like the turret sequence at the end so after you've defeated uh, Metal Gear Rex you blast out of Shadow Moses on a jeep and it's um I think Meryl's driving, so you're not in control of the jeep. You're just snake on the back with a mounted turret, and Liquid's chasing you in his jeep, uh, kind of going, Rah! In terms of the gameplay mechanics, it's not very complex. I mean, for Christ's sake, it ends with a turret section. Um, I do think the Metal Gear Rex fight is a very good boss fight. Uh, I think the Liquid fight is fairly, like, you know, it's limited by what the combat system was. It's still fun, of course, and, you know, as we'll discuss later, Kojima would call back to this moment again and again because clearly it means a lot to him but yeah it it gets that sense of a satisfying ending of having done everything i think if there was no more metal gear solid game after metal gear solid you would feel like that story had ended in a satisfying way i always quite liked the silly fight on top of the metal gear between the two of them it always reminded me of the end of lethal weapon <laughs> oh yeah because at the end of lethal weapon they've like won they've caught the bad guy but then they decide just to have like an almighty fight anyway just to sort of settle it uh so you know there is peril again like they've won the film and then they kind of put mel gibson back into peril by having and they end up being like bare 
uh, bare chested and all this like mat, you know, like a fire hydrant goes off. So they're being sprayed with water. Like the arena becomes like incredibly cinematic. And I've always thought there was definitely a bit of that in this silly bare bare chested fight. I always thought mm. it was on some weird way a double dragon reference, you know, because double dragon, of course, is one of the all time great arcade twists, which is if you and your buddy get to the end of it and beat the final boss, you then have to fight each other to see who wins the game. <laughs> um, and yeah, uh, I don't know, for some reason I always saw this fight, or the whole brother thing in Metal Gear in that light, but that's just, you know, an, an arcade-addled 80s kid's mind. <laughs> well, uh, Police Noughts riffs heavily on Lethal Weapon, right? So it kind of makes sense that um, he would draw from that well again. Ooh. That's uh, clearly a movie that he loves. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's, that's a good point. The other thing I was going to mention actually is... Um, Obviously, if uh, if Snake fails the um, uh, sort of resisting the torture uh, earlier in the game um, from Liquid and Ocelot, then um, uh, Meryl dies, and it's actually Ocelot driving. Uh, sorry, it's Otacon driving the um, the driving you out of the uh, Shadow Moses. So uh, that ending will change based on whether Meryl lives or dies, <laughs> which is uh, quite an interesting example of something they don't do that often in the series. So um, yeah, I thought I'd just mention that there for posterity. But uh, anyway. <laughs> Um, so we kind of move on to Metal Gear Solid 2 here, and, and a boss fight we did discuss in the Metal Gear Solid 2 episode, so I don't think we need to go into, into it in that much detail, but it's the Fat Man boss fight. Um, I think a lot of the other boss encounters in Metal Gear Solid 2 are very scripted. Um, when, you, when you do the boss rush mode, you realise that the Harrier, Olga, Vamp, they kind of like move and appear in these various repeatable, predictable ways, um, and they're not that as much fun on a replay. Um, I think you notice it less in um, with, with Fat Man because you're in this kind of sort slightly open arena where you're not entirely sure what direction he's going to come from, where he's going to set his bombs, um, and so on. And um, we discussed this in the MGS2 episode, but um, he leaves you a final bomb uh, to defuse as well in a, in a very kind of neat moment. But um, I personally think this is the best MGS2 boss fight. Rich, where do you stand on this? Yeah, uh, as you say, we discussed it in the Metal Gear Solid 2 episode, so I won't kind of completely repeat myself but um i think one of the things kojima is very good at is tying together bosses thematically with the mechanics you've been learning up until that point and i think metal gear solid 2 is quite kind of segmented in the stuff you're asked to do a lot of people are very critical of metal gear solid 2 now and yeah it, the big shell environment in particular um, which i kind of have some sympathy with i mean it's a big oil rig and it looks like an oil rig um what I really, really like about this fight is the lead-up to it, where you have to find all of his bombs. He's basically put half a dozen on one strut, half a dozen on another. Snake goes to get half of them, you go to get the other half. You, of course, end up in the fight with him. So Kojima is kind of like teaching the player how to find these bombs, which are hidden in really, really clever ways. Like the, the thing about the Fat Man fight and the lead up to it is that Kojima thinks about where to put bombs in 3D spaces in really, really clever ways. He never condescends to the player, um, I, I think anyway. So when you come to the boss arena, I'm trying to think of how to describe all the detritus around it, but basically it's a, it's a helipad, it's got pallets on it, it's got kind of unnamed cargo covered in tarpaulins, kind of fluttering in the breeze. There are a lot of places where he can put bombs. Uh, my favourite place he puts bombs is he'll put them at an angle you can't see from your normal perspective. So during the boss fight, you need to go to the kind of north of the screen and then look south in first person to work out where the bomb is. 
then go back into third person, run back over, get into first person, get your spray out, and you know, anyone who plays games in 2022 is probably having kittens at that thought. <laughs> to me, that's a really clever use of mechanics and an attempt to fool the player. Um, and sometimes mm. when Kojima's fooling the player, it's the kind of tricks we were talking about with Psycho Mantis. It's quite gimmicky, and once you know the trick, you know the trick. And with this one, I feel, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very fun boss fight to replay again and again. Fat Man moves around very fast, and the contrast between that, you know, this kind of asshole who's just running around with Uzis on ro roller skates, I think, blasting away <laughs> at you, and you constantly having to stop and freeze bombs, that's, that's a great tension, you know, that's a great thing mm. to put at the heart of a fight outside of this particular boss fight this game i think there's the biggest gulf between how cool the villains look in the cutscenes and mm. how cool it is to actually fight them um he, he gets like that there's always that kind of balance in these games where it's like one or the other and in in this one like when when dead cell first turn up i'm like oh this is gonna be great i can't wait to fight all these freaks and actually a lot of them are, are quite uh quite boring there's a really good element to fat man as well where he has a blast suit on because obviously he's a bomb guy so it's really really hard to get a good shot on him unless you knock him over but because he's on his roller skates and of course now that i'm saying this my mind is drawing a blank on the various methods but you can knock him over i think one of the methods is just shooting him in the chest like rapidly five or six times and it doesn't do any damage, but because of the impact, he kind of roll on his roller skates and then falls back. Then you can run around, get into first person, shoot him in the top of the head. It's not just got all the tricks, it's got layers upon layers, basically. Um, yeah, one of his best fights. It takes zero bullets to knock me over on roller skates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think when you compare it to something like the vamp boss fight, which is when I replayed it, all I ever did was just fire some grenades into the water he's swimming around in, and then he came. <laughs> then he came out, and I just headshotted him a few times. That fight's guff. Yeah, it's pretty bad. And then Fortune is kind of like the worst of them, obviously, because you uh. don't actually fight her. You just sit there and wait for her to blow some, blow up some shipping containers with her electric gun. Um, <laughs> good for her, as long as uh, she feels positively reinforced. That's all that matters. Um, okay, good. <laughs> uh, so next up, um, again, Metal Gear Solid Two. We did discuss mostly in that episode, so we've only got two moments here, but. Have to mention um, the Colonel, uh, sort of like a scare quotes there, loses his shit um, in Metal, the end of Metal Gear Solid 2, where it's revealed that you haven't been working for the Colonel, you've been working for this AI, essentially, and um, running this solid snake simulation where, um, you know, Raiden is essentially being trained as solid snake. It's this big meta statement about blah fucking blah, you know the deal. You listen to that episode, <laughs> everyone knows what Metal Gear Solid 2 is. Episode. <laughs> yeah, I would say listen to that episode instead. But um, I think the end of Metal Gear Solid 2 is kind of like fun in some other ways. Like it does introduce the high frequency blade, which is quite flawed in its sort of implementation. Um, but it does yield, we discussed this a little bit on that episode too, the very fun sequence where you and Snake are going down that corridor and you can just hack those dudes up with the sword. That was quite satisfying. Um, I think as a, as a kind of like, as an ending, it is like very bloated and self-indulgent, but it does, it does work, I think, quite well. Um, and so, yeah, I've got a lot of affection for it. I, I skipped a lot of codec conversations when I first played Metal Gear Solid 2 because I'm a heathen. I just like, I'd hit that button, you know, that one that fast forwards through it. You can't <laughs> just skip it outright. You just yeah. watch it zip by. I'd press towards the end of the game. I was like, I just, this has to finish. Like I have to be able to go, go and like, I don't know, eat some ice cream or something. <laughs> uh, so just banging through that button. 
didn't really know what that game was about until I played <laughs> it again way after the fact. I, I still think there's... We obviously kind of talked about the um, the actual meaning of what goes on and what the AI says in that episode, so I won't go over that again. I still think there's something striking with a game addressing you in the way that it does. And this goes back to the MSX. Um, the first Metal Gear has this moment where, towards the end, the kernel character in that tells you to turn off the MSX. Um, and at the moment where the the AI is collapsing in Metal Gear Solid 2, uh, one of the things it introduced to the series was um, in Metal Gear Solid 1, you had these kind of like... Uh, they were animated, but very simple animated portraits, 2D portraits of the characters. You know, so as they're talking, their mouth kind of yaps up and down like a Star Fox character or something. Um, in Metal Gear Solid 2, they've got uh, these kind of 3D rendered versions of them that I think you can use the right stick to zoom around the model while they're talking. So as well as the language you have coming from the colonel who starts talking gibberish, uh, he tells you to turn off the console, which I, I still think is like, I just think that's one of the all-time great gaming moments like i i and no no one else can do it because metal gear did it this idea of a game you're playing just addressing you and saying what do you think you're doing turn off the console now we spend our lives in games like doing what the games tell us whether we like it or not like games tell you what to do and you go and do it you know you go and kill 20 crabs or you go to strut x so i think to use that as a as a joke expecting the player to recognize it's a joke and continue anyway is pretty striking mm -hmm. certainly that's what kept me interested at the time because as I, as I said uh, on that wonderful previous pod I was very confused my first time through Metal Gear Solid 2 I had no idea what was going on really but you're still <laughs> taking in fragments of it uh, the reason I referenced the portraits earlier is that while the kernel is breaking down, his portrait starts to break down as well. So you start to get digital interference in the image. And then it starts to become a skeleton at certain points. It's almost too clean to be called horror, you know. But I think Sam's tapping into something, uh, an undercurrent in the series that, that is always there and never goes away. Where, yeah, he's not afraid to kind of throw a skeleton into a weird place and just say, what do you make of that then? I come back to this, I don't want to kind of lionise Kojima too much, um, but I do think he's quite a brave designer. And, like, I think if anyone went to a Ubisoft exec, you know, saying, oh, I want the latest Assassin's Creed to... Sorry, Assassin's Creed is always my example of kind of AA yeah. safety, <laughs> but AAA safety, but um, if they said, you know... I want Eivor to address the player and tell them to turn off the PlayStation 5. They would probably greenlight that because it's happened in Metal Gear Solid. But if it was something equivalent that was equally just outside of the norm, I don't think it would happen. Not many games have told me to turn them off and tried to make it part of the ongoing narrative. So for me, it's like, it's, it's maybe the Metal Gear moment is Metal Gear telling you to turn it off. That's, uh, yeah, very well said. Um... Okay, great. Well, that's uh, that's MGS two ticked off. Then, like um, like Rich says, we have covered a lot of this on that that previous podcast. So, hopefully, this will slot together quite nicely with that for for regular listeners. Um, and we move on to Metal Gear Solid three. So, Matthew, um, you suggested this one, which I originally omitted from my um, uh, from from my kind of first long list, um, which was a terrible mistake on my part. So, um, 
why don't you uh, talk up why this is so good? Yeah, this is not a particularly sophisticated take after uh, Rich's thoughts on Metal Gear Solid 2. I love the opening credits, the Bond pastiche of this. I think having played Metal Gear Solid 2 and being slightly baffled by it, I found this like a real uh, breath of fresh air in terms of going back to the sort of the sort of sixties set spy adventure and how closely it does mimic the kind of like you know the the sillier kind of Bond fantasy. There's still a lot a lot more chat in this than you'd get in a Bond game, but uh, that it then opens with this I think like pretty amazing Bond song basically. You know credits done in the style with all this like weird snake imagery and snake in the jungle and you know very much like i can't remember the name of the person who did the james bond credits now but the that kind of iconic style it's a very good parody of it obviously it's a game about a lot of different things but it's probably the one which can be sort of enjoyed as like the what like the wildest sort of silliest adventure in and of itself which makes the fact that it is you know fundamentally got this quite brutal ending um hit all the harder you know it's almost like a Bond film where like Bond actually learns like the full reality of the world of like the real world at the end and has to sort of deal with that and I think that's why that ending hits so hard is because it has nailed the fun fantasy of being a uh, an extraordinary sort of super agent dealing with quite mad uh, cartoon villains up to that point. I can picture sort of Matthew Castle circa the mid noughties sort of like playing Metal Gear Solid 2 and hearing, Jack, do you know what day it is? And then going through every cutscene. <laughs> so I can imagine that you were very, very impressed when you um, played Metal Gear Solid 3 for the first time and saw the sequence, Matthew. Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, so I, th- I feel like I've made a major oversight here by not mentioning the ladder in Metal Gear Solid 3, actually. But obviously you hear that song again um, during the ladder sequence, but, but in, uh, like a non-instrumental uh, version of it, um, which is a spectacular moment. But um, yeah, I agree. This this credit is going to hold up really well. It looks particularly nice, um, nice and crisp in the HD edition, which is good. You can see more of the detail. Um, I think it's Kyle Cooper who makes, who makes the introductions to these earlier Metal Gear games. Um, right. A frequent uh, Kojima collaborator, Rich. How about you? Were you you a big fan of the sort of Bond wrapping of Metal Gear Solid Three? Oh, I absolutely love it. Yeah, and um, you know, it, I don't know whether calling it pastiche, like it is a pastiche, but I don't know whether that does justice to the you know talent involved in it. You know, the mm. uh, it's by Harry Gregson Williams or composed by Harry Gregson Williams, who is basically a Hans Zimmer protege, and Zimmer's like as Hollywood royalties you get in terms of... Didn't he do the last Bond film, in fact? No Time to Die? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's like, this could have been a Bond theme, like maybe not with the lyrics it has, uh, which are as absurd as anything else about Metal Gear Solid 3. <laughs> I kind of think that's part of its charm. You know, that like my favourite bit of this song is where um, the vocalist whose name escapes me sings Some Days You Feed on a Tree Frog. Which is yeah. so so <laughs> ludicrous in the context of this kind of soaring orchestra, and the chorus being "I give my life," and then yeah, in the chorus it's like "I'm going to eat a frog now." Um, but you know, Metal Gear is in its essence that kind of mix of high and low. You know, like Kojima is always kind of going in unexpected directions. Um, I think I said when we were talking about Metal Gear Two previously, like. They almost had to make this game after Metal Gear Solid 2 because it's such a palate cleanser. It's mm. a much, much simpler tale. 
it goes right back to what Kojima really likes, which is basically kind of historical fiction, I think. Um, mm. And because of the 60s setting, you know, which is, is so James Bond, you know, like I like the modern James Bonds, but for me, James Bond is a kind of Cold War fantasy. Um, he mm. very much exists in that space. And a huge part of the character is that cheesiness that Snake Eater is tapping into. And, you know, there's the whole kind of double entendre of Snake Eater itself. You know, it's like, uh, what a weird thing to call a game. And it's not even me mm. saying this, but it's like the the opening of the Edge review I always remember is the whole first paragraph is about like, what does Snake Eater mean? And it's like, is he just making a blowjob joke? Um, and with the kind of whole Bond theme, it almost fits into that. Like it's kind of, it's salacious, it's silly, it's kind of serious as well at the same time. And mm. the thing I really admire about the song is um like you say the kind of callback to it later where probably the first time you load up the game i imagine most people's reactions were like mine they're like oh this is a funny kind of piss take of a bond song wow they've really put a lot of effort into these credits and the title screen on metal gear solid 3 is amazing as well you know it's that it's these little vignettes of snake doing cqc and then yeah the uh there's the ladder callback which is just the vocal track i believe and then the kind of when you finish the game the kind of meaning of the song hits you so it's like it's weird because it's like it's a song that i think has a lot of bad lyrics in it but it's also a song that unquestionably has meaning for me you know it like it really i really think of certain things when i hear this song and every so often um you know i'll go back and listen to it just on youtube or something just because i want to hear it I had it on my computer at work as part of the Smash Brothers soundtrack. <laughs> and I heard this song like a lot due to how I had like my folders arranged. Like I'd listen to certain clusters of music and this Metal Gear was clustered in with the Sonic tracks. Right. So I'd go from like the sublime to the ridiculous from this to like the theme tune from like Sonic and the Secret Rings or something, <laughs> which is just some awful rock kind of nonsense. I, so. I will say the audio department of Sonic Team is one of the few ones that hasn't consistently let the side down over recent <laughs> I, decades. Yeah, I, yeah, it's not too much shame. Sonic Heroes, I think, was one of them. So, um, yeah, yeah so, uh, very this... different energy between Sonic Heroes and this, for sure. <laughs> yeah, this also gets used in Metal Gear Solid 4, right? I thought it played in the last boss fight. Oh, yeah, it, uh, it oh, does, yeah, but yeah, yeah. The, the last boss fight is like uses various themes from throughout the series, basically. Right. So this is the yeah. Metal Gear 3 theme it uses. I think because I remember this song so well, like that sort of stands out as like, this for me is the Metal Gear song. It is unlockable uh, for the Walkman in Metal Gear Peace Walker, but um, not in Metal Gear Solid 4, just to correct myself there. A good, uh, good kind of way into talking about Metal Gear Solid 3 then. So um, next one I've got here is Young Ocelot Juggles His Guns and Is a Total Dick. Um, so good. So good, yeah, because I don't... When I started playing this, I don't think I knew that Ocelot was actually part of the story because I obviously I knew that the kind of setting and that you were playing this snake's predecessor, basically, um, who would become Big Boss. Um, but I don't, I didn't know this would happen. So when he turns up and he's, like, really pissy, kind of, like, sh thinks he's shit hot, kind of young Spetsnaz sort of soldier, I think that's what they're called, um, mm. and he's just, like... and he j But he's just a little bit clumsy... It's just so endearing, despite him being just like an awful, awful wanker. Um, and mm. uh, I think it 
it just really kind of works as an introduction like it's you realize that the the ocelot you've you've met in previous games is like this distilled and matured but the immature version is a complete delight essentially Mm. just juggling his guns and trying to impress people it's also like secretly the mvp of the entire metal gear series there are theories about this rich have you heard that theory that he's he's really the main character (laughs) not in the mood he he, he's he's the worst one for the like working out what he's actually doing because like at minimum he's a triple agent so it's like you know, once <laughs> once you flipped more than once, it's kind of like it's very very hard to tell. Um, yeah, there are certainly some theories that ultimately he is kind of um, on the boss's side. Big boss thinks he's on the boss's side. The, the, like ultimately, it comes down to God. I'm really gonna go into the kind of Obama chuckle. Do you mean the Chaos Emeralds territory here? <laughs> but it comes it comes down to what you think the boss's intentions were for the future of geopolitics because basically Big Boss follows one path and Ocelot follows another and one is her kind of spiritual and philosophical son and the other is literally her son. So yeah, which which path do you believe in? And some people think, yeah, Ocelot's the hero. I would certainly argue that in Kojima's last game he's presented in a more likable light than he ever was before. Those themes aside, I, I meant it more in just a sense of like he's just such a hugely entertaining presence across oh, right. the entire Sorry. series. <laughs> I meant more like whenever this guy turns up, I'm like, this is what I'm here for. This is like my favourite version of Kojima's writing. It's the kind of the sort of flamboyant supervillain who, you know, through time is really put through the ringer, and you get to meet him at multiple points in his life. I, and I do see how all this mad shit is like accumulated. Yeah, it is. It is great that bit where at the start of Metal Gear Solid 2 after you photographed uh, Ray where he just kind of strides out onto the gantry and blows someone away and he's basically well snake <laughs> you're just like well <laughs> guess it's all about to kick off now in this when he does that sort of cat meow he goes meow I, yeah. I was going to ask Sam to do that <laughs> I think Matthew did it better to be honest <laughs> it's the little hand gesture he does as well it's just spot on if, if you had a um, webcam on I did that hand gesture as I did the sound <laughs> damn we've got to start offering the uh, Patreon uh, video versions of the podcast Matthew um, yeah that's good uh, so Rich I imagine when young Ocelot turned up you were as delighted as we were at how they depicted him yeah yeah absolutely he's kind of like uh, yeah just su- such a punchable face in a lot of ways great great antagonist and it's kind of like like at the start i didn't quite realize he was ocelot because you turn up to uh you're about to get sokolov is it out of this little mm-hmm. compound and that's the first time you you kind of sneak in there there's a cutscene with sokolov and then ocelot and his soldiers turn up outside and it did take probably slightly longer than it should have for it to dawn on me when he started doing all the you know revolver spinning who it was i i kind of realized and then yeah the it's 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 not just kind of like making him endearing but it's like it's building up big boss's character as well in the way he um he disarms his gun identifies kind of the problem with the action he's got in firing his revolver he you advises he advises him to use a revolver instead of the gun ah, he's yes using. yes yes so there's this great great moment where i think it not only kind of introduces young ocelot and gives you this idea of young ocelot but it's the first moment where you realize oh this isn't solid snake because the way that big boss acts in this scene has a 
a level of competence and knowledge, I would say, that kind of exceeds pretty much anything we'd seen from Solid Snake. The way he talks about hardware as well, like, I find to be kind of, um, it convinces me he's a better soldier than Solid Snake. I have no basis for saying that. I think it distinguishes both the characters. I think you could argue that the Solid Snake, by comparison, doesn't have much of an inner life compared to um, Big Boss. Um, I think like he just you just get a lot more of that here. Um, maybe that's Kojima de- developing as a storyteller. Maybe it's the fact that you never really spent that much time with Snake before you get to Metal Gear Solid Four, and he's already an old man. But um, either way, here I think I think you're right. They they definitely suggest more more depth to him, Rich. I, l- I just love the dynamic throughout this because there is this kind of strange mutual respect that builds up where. You're not entirely sure what side Ocelot's on, but there's that final encounter where there are the two guns on the floor. You pick one up. Um, yeah, one's got the bullet in. One one doesn't. It's uh, and then you just kind of click it until you until one of you fires. Just a kind of like a great kind of sign off to that character. Um, so yeah, really just really so well done. Okay, next up is the um, a very very brief one here, but time paradox. Um, so killing Ocelot when he's knocked out, I think by um, Eva early in the game when she turns up on a motorcycle. Um, killing him while he's knocked out elicits the only appearance of Paul Lighting as the colonel in the game, where you're basically like um, told off for breaking the sort of like space-time continuum by by killing Ocelot when he's not supposed to be dead. Um, this kind of goes in the sort of same bracket as the sort of fish and mailed <laughs> um, screen and mail, guess sort of two, I suppose, um, or maybe like the switch off your console thing, Rich, where it's just a bit of uh, fun fourth wall breaking. It always amused me to imagine someone who isn't very much into Metal Gear lore wondering what they've done wrong by like blowing away a russian when all their enemies are russian uh <laughs> like there, there are definitely people out there who did this and were just like why is that a game over um <laughs> yeah it's another of kojima's neat tricks where he's doing something for the first time which is going back in time uh so there are already events in the future that have to happen obviously ocelot is going to be a key character in those so it's yeah, it's a bit of an in-joke. Um, it's very well played. He does this uh, elsewhere in Metal Gear Solid 3. Um, the thing they had on PlayStation 2 that they didn't have beforehand was an internal clock. And Metal Gear Solid 2, I think, doesn't use this apart from your birthday. I think it does something on your birthday, but it doesn't use it otherwise. But in Metal Gear Solid 3, um, you have... Obviously, this time paradox thing isn't directly related to the clock, but you have the end boss fight where you can choose to sit it out. You can also kill the end before you meet him. Did you know that? Yeah, this this was like a good transition point into into talking about the end, which is our next moment. So yeah, we actually we actually discussed this on the um, on one of our other Patreon episodes about boss. Oh, battles, I've Rich, exposed but, um, myself please... as a non-subscriber. <laughs> no, it's fine. Sorry, guys. I can I can get it for free. You. We pay you. <laughs> we pay you you don't pay us um so yeah yeah so but please carry on Rich. basically uh early on in the game uh if you look across at a certain point you can see this character on a jetty and if you have the appropriate gun uh you can just shoot him in the head and the boss fight will never happen one of those things that in the days where maybe you didn't have so many games and played them through a lot of times you might work it out eventually but this is uh arguably kojima's most famous boss fight um and for good reason, uh, it goes against pretty much every principle of boss fights video games have had. And maybe those are bad principles. Uh, this would certainly suggest they are. Like, uh, normally you come up against something enormous with overwhelming power and a huge health bar uh, that is very obvious and has a glowing weak spot. 
Um, so the fight against the end is a sniper battle. Obviously, this is a video game, but it's playing out at a pace that is so, so much slower than a normal video game boss fight. Like, you're going to be in this fight potentially for hours. I think the first time I did it, it took me a couple of hours. And it goes to the very core of what Metal Gear Solid is, which is a stealth game. Um, the end is an old dude, he's a sniper, he's at one with nature because all of the Cobra unit have their special thing. His is photosynthesis, so even though he's an old dude, he can somehow photosynthesize and run around and blend in with the landscape again every time you find him. So it's a big open arena where a guy has a sniper rifle, he's looking for you, and you have to find him and get close enough to hurt him. And the, the most interesting thing about it to me is that he's really good at finding you. You can be quite casual with the stealth in Metal Gear a lot of the time. And, you know, either you'll get a minor alert and you'll get away or there won't be any consequences. The guard will just go, hmm? And then he'll look and go, must have been my imagination. Uh, this guy just shoots you. It goes right to the core of the series. It gives you a very, very hard fight. And the difficulty is in disciplining yourself. It's not, a, it's not a mechanical thing. It's not about getting a rocket launcher aimed at the exact point of a satellite dish. It's not about doing a combo of buttons. It's about staying still, trying to work out where another entity is in this big open environment and moving as slowly as you can towards it. And to build an entire boss fight around repeating that loop, potentially over hours, Again, it's like I return to that word bravery. Mm -hmm. It asks something so, so different of the player, which is what I admire about it and why it's so memorable. Because I think the first time you play it, you try to play it like a normal boss fight and you get absolutely cut down and you realise you're fighting a sniper. And it feels like, I, it sounds nonsense to say this, and of course it is nonsense, but it feels like in some way it is mimicking that sense of fighting a sniper in a more considered way than a video game normally would it's something i did say to matthew when we did talk about this previously rich i'm not sure if you agree is that um i think there was a certain specific magic to fighting the end on ps2 as well where you're maybe playing on a crt and it's blurry as fuck in the in the jungle whereas if you play the hd edition you can actually distinguish his shade of green amongst the other greenery a lot easier <laughs> it's, it's the whole silent yeah. hill 2 thing isn't it it's um and i feel this way about resident evil 4 as well like, I think Resident Evil 4 is still one of the best-looking games of all time on a CRT, and when you play it HD, those textures just don't look the same. Like, they were designed by visual artists who know what they're doing to be interpolated, and that fuzziness could be used to great effect, particularly when you were in something like a jungle environment. But yeah, like, and obviously there's uh, the the um, sort of possibility that you can be taken... Uh, had taken prisoner in this boss fight too which is uh, and then you have to break out of prison which is a great touch as well so um yeah uh, pure magic so um oh. yeah our last mgs3 moment here is the death of the boss um so this is a really obvious one but um obviously the kind of final encounter um with the boss and the kind of truth behind uh why she does what she does in this story is kind of revealed to devastating effect broadly i just thought this this is the like most comprehensibly like human ending of his games mm. in terms of like you completely know what the stakes are you know what the relationship between these characters are the kind of twist of what they actually mean to each other hits that much harder that's what i mean about like after an adventure which has been 
not frivolous, but definitely more like lighthearted in tone. I think this stuff hits really hard. I think I remember like the cutscenes more than the actual fight itself. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's being particularly unfair to the to the combat in this game, but the the you know the the, the field of white flowers turning red. Um, you know, this is just super iconic stuff. I think mechanically, the thing I do like about it is that. Um that she taught you everything that she taught your character everything that he knows so when she uses cqc on you and she takes your guns off of you and disarms you essentially like it's it's her using what you've used against everyone else in the game but to Mm. greater effect which i think is is really great but otherwise i think i agree it's sort of shooting into some flowers and hoping for the best a lot of the time um so yeah but but in terms like the impact of the story really powerful how about you rich i'm I'm assuming that this this moment landed for you too yeah i think it's uh it's an amazing moment uh like you say he uses um the game mechanics very cleverly to really emphasize that this is a master student thing and obviously this isn't the first time you've met the boss in the game you know the pretty much I, i would say the first major story beat is her chucking you off the bridge and uh, defecting. The CQC stuff, like you're so used to walking up to enemies and kind of manhandling them, and you walk up to the boss and try and do that, and she absolutely nails you. Uh, I think the most special element of this fight is uh, the complicity at the end of it. I feel Metal Gear 3's building, Metal Gear Solid 3 is building up to this moment uh, where you've beaten her, you know kind of what's going to, what has to happen for you to finish your mission, and you know that she wants you to finish that mission because that was her plan as well. The only problem is it involves putting a bullet through her head and you have to press R2 to make that happen. And, you know, you would get some cynical people who would say, well, that's basically a cutscene. How's that interactive at all? And the whole point is that the previous 20 hours were leading up to this. And as long as you don't press the trigger, she's still alive. She's still there. The game doesn't end. Mm. And the fact that that doesn't happen in a cutscene, like, you know, Matt, you were saying your big memories of this are the cutscenes. And yeah, don't get me wrong, when the whole field turns red, that's that's an incredible kind of visual moment. He's definitely mm. ripped that off from a movie. I don't know what movie it is, but I'm, I'm sure he has. But for me, the most memorable thing about it is that, and yeah, obviously it's ludicrous. I mean, you've probably pumped 80 bullets into her over the course of that fight. But this is the one that matters, and this is the one that sets the rest of the events of the entire series in motion. And the game just sits there. I know this because I've finished this game so many times, and I've like sat on that moment. You know, I've just been like, well, I guess I could just stay here. And they do just stay there until you press the button. So you could just close the lid on the 3DS, and she'll never die. Yeah, indeed. So for me, for me, it's another great moment where. It sounds like a tiny thing. It sounds like press F to pay respects. But because of the context, he's built up around it to that point. Kojima making you complicit in that act, an act that the character itself doesn't want to do, I think is a real narrative masterstroke because the rest of Big Boss's history is regretting this moment. Okay, I completely agree because I think like the other thing is that it's it's not like... Kojima was a was a QTE guy like that QTEs were about to be everywhere just after this game released and this game is using the button that you have used to fire a weapon throughout the game um in in this in this one moment to have a, an enormous narrative impact so it's 
Very well considered. I completely agree. Very different sort of genre of moment to press F to pay respects. Just uh, um, very quickly, one thing I really miss about Metal Gear Solid 3 that it's never had outside of the PlayStation 2 is that um, the clicking sensitivity of the PlayStation 2 DualShock, it had an element to it where you could click it in a certain degree. I think it was analog clicking. Analog buttons, I think. Analog buttons, that's it. So you've got people in a hold and whether you hold down the circle button lightly is whether you're just kind of slightly knocking them out. That's a bad description of strangling someone, I guess. But if you press the button all the way in, he just cuts their throat. That's horrible because you do it accidentally. Uh, when you're playing the game, like before you realize the buttons are this sensitive to what you're trying to do, you will, you know, kill enemy soldiers when you don't mean to. And yeah, unfortunately, analog buttons are not in vogue anymore. So that side of the game is kind of completely gone because I think CQC was originally built with analog buttons in mind. Mm, yeah, so you're accidentally slitting a lot of throats when you play it um, on the, the HD edition. Um, and, and therefore making the sorrow uh, sequence a lot longer than it otherwise should be. Um, yeah, I, I, I think this ending just really works because even after this, like Snake gets what you think is like his James Bond moment with Eva and then basically gets kicked while he's down yet again um, as he kind of learns the real truth behind what's actually happened. And it is just devastating. And then like, you know, basically Snake it's like fuck you lbj and walks off and then um star sailor plays and then you're left feeling profoundly sad inside it's um yeah extremely powerful i'm laughing but it's only because i love this moment so much and it's uh it's hard to convey without being sarcastic don't know what's wrong with me really um so we move on to metal gear solid 4 um we have a surprisingly large number of moments for this one considering how turgid the game is um so <laughs> the first one here is the introduction to the game um so i picked this because I'm talking about the the kind of you're in a war zone um, sort of element of this where it's kind of establishing this this world where there's a kind of a war economy and these kind of like warring sort of private military corporations, essentially. Um, I've picked this because I think such a strong part of the Metal Gear Solid 4 experience was the hype in the lead up to this. And the imagery of Old Snake wandering through this battlefield is what the essence of Metal Gear Solid 4 is to me when I think back on these games. And so while I don't think like I don't think too much of this setting um, in terms of the different factions fighting against each other, it sort of makes for some slightly interesting set pieces. Um, it was just as the, the experience of living through the sort of Kojima marketing cycle, this kind of imagery is just burned into my brain. But um, Rich, I was curious what you think of this, but also because I think you wanted to weigh in a bit on the actual intro to this which is the weird kind of tv sections that play before metal gear solid 4 begins what are your sort of thoughts yeah it, um so i i completely agree with what you're saying about the hype cycle like next to what it, it almost feels like they took some time off with metal gear solid 3 like that game was hyped to nowhere near the levels of 4 4 was going to be the biggest playstation 3 exclusive it was going to be the the game that would show the power of the cell processor and to be fair to them, it, it looked better than any game around at the time. Uh, you know, visually, I think it's still an, an absolutely incredible achievement. And yeah, it's got this very striking element at the centre of it, which um, is, you know, here's Solid Snake, which is what all the fans wanted. He's back, uh, but he's 65. Uh, I mean, obviously, in the game lore, he's like 38 or something, but the cloning is accelerated his aging uh, so that's a very striking image to start with but um, 
the game begins with um, I believe it is eight separate channels and one of the things about Metal Gear Solid 4 it is an incredibly lavish production Sony clearly paid through the nose for this and Kojima obviously uses a lot of that money in the game but he also films these kind of um, what I would compare them to is the interstitials in a movie like Robocop like they're they're these kind of I don't know how long they are they all feel like they're about five to ten minutes long the key thing is that as you're watching them you can switch between the channels so it's eight different television programs that are being aired in the world that Metal Gear Solid 4 is set these are all live action um, some of them feature uh, David Hater giving an interview as David Hater with the solid eye on it. Some of them are played tongue-in-cheek, some of them are played very seriously, some of them are adverts for military hardware that you will run across in the game. I've never seen a game do this before or since. It is absolutely remarkable. Like, each one you can watch through on its own, and I think you'll be entertained. Like, I don't think Kojima wrote these. I think he concepted them and then some decent scriptwriters wrote them because they're very, very effective vignettes and the most effective thing about them is that you're doing this thing that the character is normally doing in the movie of flicking through the channels and you're getting these, like, it's almost like Magic the Gathering cards, you're getting this little bit of flavour text every time about the world you're entering into because, like, one of the things about Metal Gear Solid 4 is it is this nightmare scenario. It is this dystopia that, like, Snake was always trying to stop, that the previous games were supposed to have stopped. Admittedly, again, it's like the interactivity is limited to a button press. So, I, yeah, I, I think that's a pretty remarkable introduction to the world. In terms of what you're saying about the... I think the whole opening of Metal Gear Solid 4 is the best bit of that game. It's superb. I think the first chapter of that game you have the two warring factions you're moving through slowly it's very very active it's using every system it's got and halfway through it introduces uh you know the horror of the geckos which again are like almost another step forward for this metal gear idea of body horror where the mech has become smaller but it's become more animalistic you know the geckos um i'm sure everyone's seen them but Basically, they have a kind of a Metal Gear-esque small head. They're probably about twice the size of a normal human being. And then they have these two gigantic kind of, uh, I'd say, navy blue colored muscular frog-like organic legs. And when you shoot those legs, they bleed. Um, when you kill these things, they kind of fall over with a screech. They sort of moo, don't they? Yeah, they they make all sorts of weird noises. They're quite like bovine. They're uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, They don't move like cows, but yeah, they do they do moo. I agree with that. Do you rate the balls with hands? No, I do think they've got some interesting points to make when it comes to uh, Shadow Moses, which we'll talk about later. Uh, as an enemy type, bit rubbish. But like, yeah, I think Metal Gear Solid Four is one of those games where he built half of it and then realised it needed to be finished. And, you know, the second half reflects that. I think the, the first two chapters of this, um, with the kind of slightly more Metal Gear Solid 3S kind of jungle uh, setting, slightly, not too much, but a little bit, um, that that kind of has, a, I think that's a really nice sort of combo. 
um, where it feels more expansive than later chapters do, uh, which are more hemmed in to kind of get the story over with, like you like you suggest there, Rich. So yeah, that, it, it was very striking, especially because I think for a while I thought it was basically like a post-apocalypse when they were marketing it. I thought, oh, it's, it's like, it, this doesn't seem to be any civilians in this city. It just seems to be endless war, and Snake is really old, and like it feels like the future. But, you know, there's a lot... That's not actually the case when you play it. Um, but, uh, yeah, nonetheless. Um, so, next up, Rich, we've got um, one that you want to suggest here, which is Octo Camo. Kind of like a de- develops on from the um, selecting your camouflage in Metal Gear Solid 3. Now, I didn't massively rate this, so I'd love to hear why you kind of think this is a, a kind of great system in Metal Gear Solid 4. Because I think this series, in a lot of ways, is about um, improving over time and looking at systems they have and making them better over time and exactly what you introduced it with there they had this idea with Metal Gear Solid 3 that because it's in the jungle um, you can change your camouflage and it will make enemies less likely to spot you Um, the only problem is you have to go into a menu select it, you come back out into the game and snakes in the camo so it's kind of, it's breaking the immersion or however you want to put it uh, so Octocamo works, um, it's a suit that automatically blends to any environment texture it's next to for a couple of seconds. So it's not constantly changing while you're running around. But if you stop next to a wall and lean up against it, Snake's suit will take on the texture of that wall. Um, there's also a hood, um, so you can put this kind of face mask on him, so his entire body changes into you know, the texture of whatever you're next to. What I really like about this is that it works for every texture in the game. It also works um, in, I'm not really sure how to articulate this, but in areas. So let's say you stop at a wall and there's a wooden box next to you, right? You're going to take on the colour of the wall, but your left leg that's pressing against the wooden box is going to take on the colour of the wooden box. So you can end up with these quite kind of funny and weird combinations where uh, like one of the things in Metal Gear Solid 4 is he loves watermelons, he sticks watermelons everywhere, so you can create it into a watermelon texture, you can save these textures to use in different environments should you want to Um, more than anything else, it's the wow factor for me Um, when I saw this happening, I couldn't believe it, because the colour of the costume changes in real time to the texture it's an incredible stealth tool, like you can just get down on the floor and as long as a guard isn't going to walk kind of within a foot of you they'll walk by you and that's one of the fun things about it because it has this element to it where guards can still notice you you're not invisible you know you still have a bodily form on the pavement but you look exactly like the pavement so if you're in the right position five of them will walk past you there are also all these kind of like custom bits built into the levels uh, one of the ones that was used in a trailer famously is uh, you can climb up onto a plinth with a statue and Snake uh, I believe uh, holds the statue's todger and you know <laughs> yeah. bends down in front of it and um, not in that sense he kneels and he becomes like a statue and the soldiers walk by so it was this thing where they had the idea of camouflage and then they were like you know what this is inconvenient, it's taking players out of the game, they don't like it, how can we make it, you know, an actual mechanic? And Octocamel for me, uh, just superb. It's magic. Like, I I really still feel Octocamel is like magic. When I see that happening, I'm just thinking, 
my god, wasn't why wasn't this, you know, in every kind of stealth game subsequently? Because it's such a good idea. Does it, but doesn't it even get, in my memory of Metal Gear Solid 4, is pretty hazy, but doesn't it kind of get phased out pretty much from halfway through this game, though? Like, isn't it, isn't it real? Oh, like, the showcase it, for it, it is the first yeah, two it, levels. It's only effective on human enemies, so the robots can kind of see through because they're, I don't know, sensing your fucking old man heartbeat or something. Um, but just in terms of taking an idea they had that was quite inelegant, and making it not only supremely elegant, but look amazing and have great gameplay application. I absolutely mm. love Octocamo. It's, it's, you know, there are moments when you're a game fan where you see something in a game and you're just like, I've got to play this fucking thing. And the first time I saw Snake kind of lie on, I think it, it's like a black and white tiled surface. Uh, they had this mm. demo where. Uh, it's in the first level, there's a very stark kind of black and white tiled surface and he lies down in it and he just becomes, you know, perfectly black and white textured in line with the tiles. And as soon as I saw that, I'm just like, God, I must have this game, you know. <laughs> and then if it changes to those textures and you move on the tiles, your tiles will be slightly out of sync. So you're more likely to be noticed. It's... ah. <laughs> just a brilliantly thought through device, you know, in a game that, you know, a lot of it is about devices. I think this is the best one ever. And the fact that they used it once and in arguably kind of the the least accomplished entry, it kind of breaks my heart. Kind of wish there was like a whole game of the the game that Metal Gear Solid 4's opening chapter promises it will be rather than the um, slightly uh, sort of like um, welded together uh, game that it actually is. Um, okay, great. So next up is Return to Shadow Moses in Metal Gear Solid 4. So this game has a kind of very powerful thing where it essentially puts you in control of uh, Snake in the kind of like opening uh, sort of like um, helipad area of Shadow Moses in kind of like PS in the PS1 game as it was originally presented. Then cuts to modern day where... Um, uh, in the kind of like a PS3 uh, sort of like fancy vision, you do the slow, misty walk up to that same area, but um, see it like you've never seen it before. Um, meanwhile, I think I think they do something kind of like quite neat where um, they have Snake wearing like a uh, kind of younger man, like a, a mask that makes him look like his younger self as well to complete the effect, or at least that is in your inventory. Um, but a very kind of powerful bit of nostalgia. And then the, the game essentially lets you explore that almost that entire space um but recreated um with ps3 visuals so very famous moment the ps1 section of it isn't it sort of a dream isn't it the idea that he sort of like he sort of wakes from it and he sort of moves from yeah i think he's ps1 snake to like ps3 snake i think he's flying in to shadow moses and the sequence you're playing sam talked about he's dreaming and then when you finish that sequence he wakes up on the plane and then I can't recall if he's wearing the pixel mask or not. I think that might be a bonus item, but you can press um, triangle. And as he's flying in, you can remember moments from Shadow Moses. Very distinct memory of being in locations and you hear like echoes of codec conversations that he had in those places. And there was actually something quite similar in the Ground Zeroes. Wasn't there a, like a bonus mode where you took photos of things that reminded him of... Metal Gear moments. There's one of them where you can photograph ghosts, 
there's games, I think it might be Metal Gear Solid 4 actually, there are ghosts at certain point in, points in the game, well, maybe and I'm if you photograph... i a few things up here. Yeah, the one I remember from Ground Zeroes, and I might be wrong, is that uh, there's a mission where you have to photograph logos from all the Metal Gear games, and as you photograph them, you get a little voice line from Snake that is That's... kind of encapsulates the game and kind of tells you what Kojima thinks about it, basically. That's 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 probably what I'm thinking of. Yeah, um, it does. Metal Gear Solid Four has the kind of like um, you press a button to remember stuff throughout as a kind of like a, a device. So when you meet uh, Eva um, as like a big mama, I think she's called in Metal Gear Solid Four. Like um, you can you see snapshots of her in Metal Gear Solid Three. So. Yeah, it definitely does that throughout, but here to most powerful effect because you're literally exploring an environment you've um, been to before. Um, what was your take on this, Rich? Um, do you have kind of like a take on sort of um, Kojima and nostalgia? Do you think he sort of like, like enjoys nostalgia or do you think he sees it as like something that hangs around his neck and drags him down a little bit? Oh, I think uh, this would definitely suggest the latter. Um, it's, it's an amazing moment because it brings home very forcefully, or it did to me as a player, you know, I was thinking about where I was when I played Metal Gear Solid. I was a teenager when I played Metal Gear Solid. I was still living with my dad. Twelve years or whatever later, it's probably not twelve years, it's probably a decade. I'd obviously been to university, I'd had a couple of jobs, I'd lived in a different part of the country, My like I'd had an adult life. And you think about, you know, that, that period of time and how much stuff has changed over it. And the creator is asking you to do that. Like, he is flipping between uh, low-polygon PlayStation 1 Snake and current-generation Snake in order to make you think about, you know, presuming that you've been on that journey with him, uh, that journey you've been on, and you get to Shadow Moses, and it's a wreck. Like, that's that's the point. It's like Shadow Moses isn't active. You know, it didn't get started up again after Metal Gear Solid it's empty apart from the rumor that there might be a metal gear here uh apart from robots and you know the the point it's very much making is that snake is a bit of a relic and probably so are you as a player if you've been here this long your octocamo doesn't work as we alluded to earlier those little handy robots will find you anyway um he goes back to like a lot of the mechanics that metal gear solid used so there's a lot of vent crawling in this section of the game and yeah, it's it's something very few series to me have done. Um, probably because very few series have this kind of um, not not longevity. A lot of series have longevity, but Metal Gear Solid had a kind of coherence to it, where it was all under the aegis, if you like, of one man. No matter how many people created it, this is kind of the sequel the fans always said they wanted. You know, the uh, ever since Metal Gear Solid Two. Kojima was kicking back against this idea of, you know, it's Solid Snake returning to Shadow Moses. Da -da -da -da. So he gives you it. And Shadow Moses is a wreck and Snake's an old man and it's filled with robots that are much more competent than the old human guards. And you feel like a man at a time. Uh, and if you get that feeling, you probably are, I think. I don't want to get too meta with it, but I probably already have. Like, one of the earliest examples I can think of of this kind of device which now is like hugely commonplace but weirdly very rarely is effective you know at the moment we're in this kind of clutch of this sort of um sort of revived nostalgia stuff where you get 
you know, enough time has passed since the 80s that you can remake all the films of the 80s or sequelize the film of the 80s and bring back the cast as old people. And, you you know, that that is the special effect. You're meant to go like, oh, shit, it's like Bill Murray, but he's like 70 now and he's still a Ghostbuster and you feel that. But I think there it, it people feel like it's enough just to sort of show you that and that, you know, you'll be like, oh, yeah, very good. Thank you for thank you for that. But I think this definitely does like a lot more. It's a, it's a re- extremely elegant version of that. Thing. Yeah. When you wade into the weeds of auteur theory with Kojima, um, it's it's kind of it, it can be dangerous because you, you don't want to credit him with everything. But one of the reasons I think these games stick with people so much is that, um, you know, obviously we're talking about kind of 25 great moments tonight, but there are hundreds of weird and surprising moments in these games. And when you make a codec call and you get a kind of digression about a particular breed of mushroom or like what Kennedy did at a particular conference or why the original Godzilla was made, like you do feel that very one-to-one connection with a creator just kind of spouting off at you, basically. And I certainly feel I've never met Kojima. He's one of the big interviews I've never done. I, I do feel I know elements of his character. Like, I, I wouldn't say I know Hideo Kojima, but uh, I, I know some of the things he's interested in for sure. Like, I know what he thinks about a lot of these things. And I do feel a kind of, not a personal connection with him, but I do feel a connection to him through his work. And I think the ultimate expression of that was this kind of Shadow Moses return where, yeah, it was kind of like, I felt it was a really melancholy moment and kind of offset by what it turns into because uh, it turns into a great moment. But the opening vibe of it is like, God, you know, how far have we come? And is it any better? <laughs> yeah. Really nicely, nicely put. Um, yeah, that's uh, yeah, fantastic. So I suppose that does lead us into our next moment here, which is kind of like a sort of umbrella, sort of like category, I guess, of great choreography in Metal Gear Solid Four. Like Rich says, this is a very lavish game. I would say it's like a very pre-recession ass game in terms of like how um, how it's presented. Just the kind of Playboy tie-ins, the iPod you have in the game octo camo um just uh, you know the kind of like sheer amount of cutscenes, just a very very lavish game in general but the choreography is spectacular and um the raiden versus vamp fight is one example of that but rich i think the moment you're alluding to with shadow moses is um ray versus rex and you are kind of manually in control of this but you are it is essentially about the spectacle of metal gear solid one versus metal gear solid two um i'm not sure if there's any kind of like deeper meaning to it than that but it sure is cool to watch them fight so um yeah i suppose like that moment do you think that kind of that that really lands or is it kind of just a a kind of cool bit of fan service uh i i think both i think it really lands and it's a really cool bit of fan service um as you allude to there the kind of controls aren't really too complex at this point it's like it's basically button mashing and it's two giant mechs kind of uh battering each other and you're, of course, in the one that's supposed to be less powerful. You know, Solid Snake, as ever, the inferior brother, is in Metal Gear Rex versus um, Ocelot slash Liquid in Metal Gear Ray, which is supposed to be the Metal Gear killer. So you shouldn't have a chance in the first place. Yeah, and it's it's basically a bar brawl, except with, you know, two robots that are about 100 metres tall. But <laughs> it's fantastic because it's, um, you know, up till this point, it's kind of been making 
Well, what I was just talking about, you know, it's been making the point that Snake and Shadow Moses and all that stuff are relics, and in the modern era, Rex and Ray are relics as well. You know, this is kind of uh, two old dogs sent out for their last kerfuffle. Absolutely spectacular. <laughs> uh, it is a moment of fan service. I also think it's enormously cathartic, and I know I've used that word a couple of times before, but like, I really think there's something to be said for that in games. I love, love, love games where I get a giant moment of just mashing the button and destroying something. You know, as long as I've earned it up to that point. And I kind of feel mm. that's what this is. Um, and I, I do think he's got a decent sense for, okay, they've had enough of the, you know, exposition quiet time now. It's time to kind of uh, take the wheels off again and, yeah, blow everyone's hats off. Uh, and I, th- I think <laughs> that's all this is and it's all it needs to be. While obviously, like the the mech fight definitely overshadows it. I do really like the um, there's a sort of almost sort of a, like wave defense bit where you're fighting off all the geckos while Raiden and Vamp are kind of fighting on. Is, is it? I think it's like split screen. Yeah, yeah. It's on on top of Metal Gear Rex, similarly to the end of Metal Gear Solid. Yeah. Like that is just like the resources put into like making that fight happen and showing that fight when you can't really look at it because you're busy shooting like a rail gun at these stupid like mooing robots yeah. it's just the sheer excess of that is 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 pretty amazing <laughs> and when you watch that scene back by itself like if you watch it on youtube like the fight is beautifully done <laughs> like i think there's a point where Vamp has stuck two blades inside Raiden's wrists and he's just using them like kind of Wolverine and swinging his arms around trying to hit him with the blades and like yeah again you you don't see that because all you're doing is fighting some moving robots on the other screen um so yeah yeah but really really nicely done um yeah the Raiden thing in general was quite interesting before because the the narrative was very much reclaiming Raiden who is this very hated character is but now he's the rad cyborg ninja um <laughs> which did seem to resonate um Okay, great. Let's move on then to Metal Gear Solid 4's ending. So, Rich, you push for this. Is this, is this specifically the 60-minute um, cutscene, or is this the, the fight between Snake and Ocelot you wanted to put in? Uh, I think um, a little bit of both. Uh, Metal Gear Solid 4 is one of those that... I still think it's probably the worst in the series, um, but I do think this is one of the best series of games ever, so I'm not saying it's a bad game. Um, but it's also one that I've come to appreciate a little more over time um i do think the the fact that he was constantly being pressured to return to characters to end their arcs kind of made him just decide well you know you want an ending i'm gonna give you one and i'm gonna salt the earth and i'm gonna make sure it can never happen again and that's what he does with this he kind of um you end up uh, once again in a fist fight with Liquid, uh, except this time uh, it's got a more involved combat system. And as the fight progresses, uh, the two characters kind of morph into the snake and the liquid figure from each entry in the series. So initially it's snake and liquid, then it's liquid ocelot then I think it's Ocelot for the rest of it. <laughs> so I, I think he's called like Liquid Ocelot in the Metal Gear Solid 2 bit. You know, and it's a very simple technique, but like having this kind of multi-stage boss fight where the themes for each game kind of rise as you, as basically two old men kind of 
knock the stuffing out of each other. I've, I found quite a poignant ending to, you know, this game about kind of the struggles over ultimate military technology and geopolitically who controls force kind of coming down once again to these kind of two brothers that can't really agree and their only solution is to kind of batter away at each other. Um, and then also I, I, I would certainly not stand up for the length of the ending cutscene but something that I once hated about this game which is that Big Boss comes back at the end and he's not dead I now think is hilarious because um, <laughs> that that aspect of this closing off every potential avenue um, yeah it's like I think by this point he'd already died twice in the series <laughs> so he turns up again and then like yeah uh, slaps Snake around a bit, tells him what's what, and then he dies for a third time. Before he dies, he does the salute at the grave, um, mirroring the ending of Metal Gear Solid Three, and it's 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 absolutely stupid. It's also kind of perfect. It's also someone just going, "You'll never have another." You know, this is it for Solid Snake. This is it for Big mm. Boss. You know, I've brought them back just to kill them off again. The way he introduces it is that you get the ending of Metal Gear Solid 4. This is what I really like about it. And then you get the credits. And then after the credits have rolled, someone doesn't turn up and say it's me, Blorco. You get a little <laughs> credit for Big Boss. And you're like, what the fuck? Big Boss isn't in this game. And then the final cutscene rolls and fucking Big Boss turns up with his cigar and everything. And... <laughs> Yeah, maybe maybe it's you know time playing tricks on my adult mind, but uh, I love the absurdity of it now because um, uh, yeah, I do think it's one of the most absurd endings to a game I've ever seen. There's also the weird element of like I think like Major Zero in beef jerky form in a bag yeah. or something like that. Like that's another strange element. But of that, that. But um, that's the thing is like it's completely absurd storytelling. But it's a creator going, I'm going to tie off every single loose end there is. Like, like that's what it is. The funny thing is as well, like we were talking about Kojima nostalgia. Like the as for the boss fight itself, like um, he does know when to switch it on when he wants to give it to you. He just won't give it to you all the time. Essentially. Um, he'll make you wait for it and that that's you know that kind of careful approach is maybe what we don't see in the modern will bring back the old characters you you love um, and just put them on screen and go hey look at them we look at them we put them there isn't that amazing um mm. very different he makes you work for your nostalgia a little harder um but yeah like the the the, the big boss sequence i never really thought about it as, as that kind of tying off element but um of course that's exactly why i did it um and also uh uh, Johnny Sasaki marries Meryl. That bit sucks, Rich. But um... I hate I hate Johnny Sasaki. If there's one thing I wish wasn't in the Metal Gear Solid series at all, it is that guy. Yeah, that is awful. Okay, so uh, moving on then, um, we've come to a game that only Rich is the expert on, um, but I would love to hear about it from you, Rich. So our 17th moment here. Um, the Peace Walker has the boss's voice and personality from Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker on PSP. So why don't you take us through this one? Uh, okay, so I'm going to give you probably a very inaccurate uh, summary of Peace Walker's plot here. But basically, um, in this game, you play as Big Boss in the kind of, you know, years after Metal Gear Solid 3. Very disillusioned individual. Um, a lot of the imagery for this game is based around Castro. 
and Big Boss is made to look like Castro in the posters and stuff. The idea is that over the course of this game, you are building an independent military organization, which is called uh, Militar Sans Frontières, uh, obviously riffing on Doctors Without Borders. Uh, the idea being that um, all the big nation states have acquired nuclear deterrents. Uh, there's a huge uh, Doctor Strange love influence in this game. Uh, it's all about the idea of mad, uh, mutually assured destruction and the idea that um, Big Boss is going to create this independent organization so they can protect nations that can't protect themselves against nuclear-equipped nations. So you're going to build a nuclear-equipped Metal Gear called Peace Walker. <laughs> so as you can see, the kind of contradiction levels are off the charts already. One of the things Kojima gets very good at, uh, very good is an overstatement, but it begins here. Uh, one of my favourite characters of his are the Emmeriches um, as they go on. I think uh, Huey in Metal Gear 5 is probably the best character he ever, he ever did. Huey first appears in Peace Walker here. He's building Big Boss's mech throughout the game. You build Mother Base. You are also building Peace Walker. There are various stages in building, you know, towards this Metal Gear. They're all named after uh, the stages a butterfly chrysalis goes through. Yeah, I think the first one's called Cocoon. And then it's Pupa. Chrysalid is one for sure. The idea you're going to create something beautiful. And then there's this very striking moment where you realise the scientist building it has given it the boss's voice. And they claim it has the boss's AI and pursues the boss's goal. And you're playing a character who's pretty much done everything they have in this game because they're so fucking traumatised at having to blow away their mentor and mother figure, arguably. So it's a stunning moment because he could obviously never have brought the boss back, but you're in this scenario where you're building this kind of slightly unholy creation and you know it's unholy and then all of a sudden it starts speaking to you with this incredibly familiar voice but you know it's not her and it's a moment of meaning that it kind of only exists if you've played Metal Gear Solid 3 which you know yeah these things should stand on their own but realistically this is a powerful moment because of what's gone before and it really brings home the kind of um I think the the wrong path uh, Big Boss was taking because he's yeah he's he's building you know a militia as he will continue to do and ultimately I think his biggest flaw is that Big Boss believes that what can solve the world is more war and this moment for me brings it home of the moment of his ultimate kind of I don't know whether to call it failure but certainly the moment of his ultimate trauma the moment he always returns to kind of coming back to haunt him as he's building this kind of, yeah, unholy thing. Damn, that makes me wish I'd played this game properly instead of just playing a couple of hours and leaving. You know it was called Metal Gear Solid <laughs> Five, but Konami wouldn't let him call it that because it, <laughs> it was on PSP. They didn't... Th and he spent... Didn't, yeah. didn't think a mainline, you know, Metal Gear should be on PSP. But everything that The Phantom Pain is and why it's good goes back to Peace Walker. This is what introduces Mother Base... Um, the whole structure of it would basically be adapted into the Phantom Pain just with an open world instead of what it has here because it's on PSP of very short, discrete missions. 
countering that, it does have a character called Hot Coldman. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, c- come on. It's, you know... <laughs> give, me, give me a break. <laughs> I, 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 I completely agree, you know. Um, the, only, the only thing I ever think kind of to say of in Kojima's defense is it like it makes me think of you know really old literary works like the Pilgrim's Progress where characters are just named after the emotion they represent you know right. like grief turns up and all grief does is moan about you know their mother who's died and then anger turns up and they just shout at the character and then they walk on and so it's like it's not like I agree. His names are completely stupid, but um, there is, there is this like he has this very literal sense. Yeah, it's 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 odd to put your finger on, but it feels quite archaic to me. Yeah, I, I think I like that as a defense. I think that kind of makes sense. Um, it's not like he's ever going to stop doing them anyway, based on Death Stranding. So, um, <laughs> yeah, okay. What, what's um, what's the think, worst Kojima name? I think Hot Colbert is up there. Um, <laughs> oh, I don't know. I didn't. I didn't like, like Hartman. Hartman was that was. That I mean, was quite his rough. gimmick being that his heart stops every uh, yeah. you know, ten minutes or whatever it is. Yeah, that sucks. Fragile's very oh, very. Oh, I on can't the nose. stand her. <laughs> <laughs> I love Death Stranding, but you know, and the let's just say in the director's cut, I've been skipping all the cutscenes. <laughs> um, so following on from your mother base point uh, Rich, your next one is developing Sony product lines at mother base slash PSP Sony integration more widely as a theme, so uh, yeah talk, talk us through this one well uh, one, of the, one of the things I really admire which unfortunately is kind of is going the way of the dodo um, is the way that a software product can be designed for a specific piece of hardware and it will always be perfect and always at home on that piece of hardware because its creator has never conceived of it being played in any other way. One of the things I like about Peace Walker, and I think I think for the, for the longest time, uh, Metal Gear Solid really was a Sony exclusive. You know, Sony bankrolled it, and certainly when you get to this kind of time period, they put God knows how much into Metal Gear Solid 4. So in Peace Walker, uh, it uses every single functionality the PSP has. So that thing could do so much more than most games ever did with it. Uh, it it had a kind of like little, it's not street pass, but it had a little like airdrop thing where when you were around other PSP owners, you could swap information. It had a DLC element to it, like not paid DLC, but developers could release more stuff that could be downloaded in the menus. And Peace Walker uses all of that. So like over its lifespan, um, and don't get me wrong, none of this is hugely significant stuff it's you know new t-shirts for you but the major element it introduces uh which will become incredibly important in the phantom pain is the mother base so all the missions in peace walker are much much shorter and it's not a contiguous kind of environment that it would be that it was in the previous metal gears so you're kind of going in and out of these familiar environments and over time you'll see them again and again and you're developing product lines back at mother base and one of the things he decides to do is that as well as developing the military technology, you start developing all the technology Sony was developing in the 70s. And the one I particularly love is the Walkman. So you start developing the Walkman, then you can take a Walkman into missions with you and you can play any cassette tapes you've acquired. <laughs> and as you progress through, as your research team gets better, 
you start developing the next Walkman, which of course is exactly the Walkman that Sony designed in the 70s. So you're essentially <laughs> going through the evolution of Sony's Walkman line as you're leveling up <laughs> the equipment um, in Mother Base. And by the end, you've got the Walkman that was just basically an earpiece with all the MP3s on it. But of course, you've got it in 1976. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I love that. Um, like I, I really like um, Sony hardware just generally like i really admire the way they design stuff the the fact that this game took such pride in being on a piece of sony hardware using every single aspect of that hardware it possibly could um and peace walker is a game designed to be played in a room with another person on psp like that that is what it's for so the whole character of the game is about the device it was made for it uses every functionality that device has and then within the game itself you are mimicking the kind of product development path of the company that ultimately paid for the game um i just think is really cool and you know uh, admittedly i like sony hardware so developing new versions of the walkman that i recognized was kind of cool and there were other sony products in there but you know the walkman's the most obvious example um i i, I just <laughs> admire that like the software built for hardware that reflects that i think is some of the most magical stuff you get in gaming i suppose that really is lost if you play the xbox yeah version, you know? <laughs> it's a game that really suffers outside of its natural environment like i i i think if anyone played peace walker in the hd remasters and didn't like it like i kind of sympathize with them because it's just not built for it kind of the position i was in with it a little bit um but uh alas maybe i should put it on my ps vita and try it there instead um okay great so um the last one here uh, rich is a kind of a mechanic more of a mechanics based one so the first time you fault in someone um, a mechanic that become very important in um uh, the phantom pain as well so uh yeah like um this worked basically the same in in peace walker uh pretty much um and uh it kind of links into what we were talking about with octocamo earlier like i think this is a series that um identifies its own problems and then solves them and the problem it had with peace walker was in portable ops as i said earlier you could you know take enemy guards back interrogate them they'd join your unit but you had to literally drag them through the level which is awful nobody wants to do that and then in peace walker all of a sudden they're like why don't we just stick a balloon on them um and <laughs> to me this is probably one of the greatest moments in metal gear history because it always has these absurd elements, right? It always has these completely daft elements. The Fulton is a real thing. You know, it was a prototype. It was never actually made, but it was a concept that they built some prototypes of for getting people out of a war zone. You know, it's like we can lift them up in a balloon and then a plane can come by and pick them up from the balloon. And it never worked. Like in Batman. <laughs> yeah, Dark Knight. Yeah, Dark yeah, Knight yeah. Or the Batwing. Yeah. yeah. He gets Fulton in the Dark Knight. Yeah, it's literally the same thing. It's uh, it's quite weird. But yeah, the balloon kind of goes up and he gets taken out of, is it, is he, where is he? Was he in China at the time? I think he is. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah. I, I was thinking of the Burton Batman where he uses the Batwing but... to get all the Joker's balloons completely the wrong way around. <laughs> Batman, Batman's got a long history of like weird plain balloon behavior. <laughs> uh, so yeah. They come up with this solution to a mechanical problem that's also got a kind of, you know, it timey-wimey, real-world basis. But fundamentally, it feels great. It allows the mother base portion of the game to sing 
because realistically no player is ever going to drag 10 soldiers back to the start of the level but as soon as you can do this you fulton everyone and if you're careless about fultoning the enemy soldiers will shoot it down and even if they can't shoot it down they'll notice someone's been filtered so it's this amazing mechanic that makes the other side of it work like for me one of the reasons the phantom pain is one of the best games ever is it manages to somehow tie this single player campaign around you know yeah you you having your home base and building your kind of little army it did this in peace walker for the first time um but Everything depends on the Fulton. If you don't have that Fulton mechanic, it doesn't work. And it only gets better over time in the series. Like in the Phantom Pain, you gradually upgrade your Fulton. So like I think initially they're more bulletproof, then they get quicker, and then you can take out uh, mineral cases with them. Then it's wormholes. So it's one of these great things where they're solving a problem and they're not only solving a problem elegantly, they're doing it in a way that was much much more fun than what the series was doing before so I, I yeah i think this is one of the most important bits in metal gear history mechanically anyway again we should just play this on psp instead of trying to play it on the xbox 10 years ago uh that's on me um okay great but it's good to have you talk, speak to that rich because otherwise we me and matthew be completely lost with this game so that's good the, the other thing i want to say is i love the sound effects for the animals when they get filtered in the fan game <laughs> when you get a goat out and it's just like you hear it going up into the sky like Meh! That that is comedy gold. As the sound effect kind of like disappears into the distance, it's uh, yeah, spot on. <laughs> um, okay, great. So we come to our single Metal Gear Rising Revengeance moment, which is Raiden hacks up Metal Gear Ray. Um, on previous episodes, Rich, I've described Revengeance as a bit of a lesser platinum game. At least I guess it it, it was maybe more so five to ten years ago, but over time maybe platinums produced some like lesser stuff generally. But certainly at the time. I didn't think it was it quite stood up to Bayonetta or Vanquish. Where do you kind of stand with um, Revengeance? It doesn't stand up to Bayonetta. Uh, Vanquish I'd put to one side because they're not really the same type of game. Um, I think Revengeance was a great game at the time. I still think it's a great game now. I think probably the fact that its combat system is slightly more simple than something like a Bayonetta or a Devil May Cry is arguably a point in its favour as a Metal Gear title. Um... I never felt bored when I played this game. Um, I thought it had that platinum level of, you know, you you expect something from platinum, and unfortunately they've got less good at delivering it over time. Um, but at this stage, they were kind of arguably just after their pomp, still in it. And I think the fights in this are incredible. Um, I think once you work out how the combat system works, that's a very special moment. Because I played this you know, for the first hour or two, not really understanding the kind of importance of the Zendatsu, or whatever they call it, the thing where he rips out their spines. And as soon as you get that, this game becomes a joy. And it's something that works against, you know, games like games like Bayonet and Devil May Cry 5. It's like, you make one mistake, you're fucked. You know, your, your health bar is going to last you until the end of the level. And I, you know, I know they've got gentler over time, but fun limit fundamentally they're about punishing players for mistakes and there's nothing wrong with that but revengeance is like you can make all the mistakes you want because as long as you get one enemy kind of vulnerable you can rip their spine out and you've got full health again and off we go so i loved the kind of um streamlined nature of it in that sense and how much it leaned into what's you know let's face it a pretty stupid mechanic 
And okay, it kind of cocked up some boss fights slightly, but it's a price I'm willing. Yeah, to pay. I think it. I think it's quite funny that this game sort of seemed to exist because there was that one video of the original version of Metal Gear Rising where Raiden hacked up a melon. And then I feel like basically that video was handed to Platinum. They said, make this into a whole game. And like, um, <laughs> yeah. they went away and did it. Make that melon, make that melon 200 foot tall. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I think the Metal Gear Ray moment's good because um, it kind of feels like it's one of, the, it gives you one of its best moments up front. You want to see a Metal Gear get cut up um, while you're playing as the grad cyborg ninja Raiden that you saw in Metal Gear Solid 4. And this moment gives you that. Um, I think some boss fights later on are a bit harder work. Um, Matthew, do you have a take on Revengeance? I hate the end of it so much. I mean, we, we've talked about this, I think, in our boss episode. I, the meme culture around Senator Armstrong and the affection that seems to exist for that character drives me up the wall because it was one of the most frustrating review experiences I've ever had. Like, I just couldn't click with that, that last boss fight and it left a really sour taste in my mouth which is annoying because I think just before it, you have quite a rad fight with Jetstream Sam or whatever his name is. Even to this day, the bitterness of the end of that, that game doesn't haunt me, but sticks with me. <laughs> I definitely agree in a game full of great boss fights, like the worst one is last for some reason. You know, the Jetstream Sam fight is fucking incredible. That That is one of my favourite fights in these types of games. And I think it's got a lot of great fights. The Monsoon fight is fantastic. I like how its weapons are built around the bosses. Like, I think you can really see the work Kojima Productions did on Metal Gear Rising before it went over to Platinum in, yeah, basically Raiden's weapons and how they're used. Uh, to get back to the kind of Metal Gear bit, I think the the most amazing bit about this is that it's like it's like an endgame climax in the right. first level. <laughs> Um, you know, the first time this Metal Gear turns up, you're like running around its feet and it's shooting, you know, down on the ground at you. And I think you're hacking away at pipes on its ankles or something. And then as soon as you've got it, like slightly disabled, he runs up it. And don't you like run up a building while it fires rockets at you? Run back down at it and slice it in half. It's like, fuck me, you know, yes, that's what I want from my video games, exactly. The The whole thing is, the reason that's such an amazing moment to me, at least, is like you're thinking, God, that's the end of the first level. And then, like, it never quite... Well, I mean, maybe Jetstream Sam is the exception, but I feel like this is such a great proof of concept for what the game is, and then the rest of it just doesn't quite live up to it. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I would have to revisit it to um, properly back that up, but that's certainly how I felt at the time. Did you notice that this game came back into the headlines recently because the a Jetstream Sam meme had taken off? So loads of kids were buying it on Steam um, to play it for the first time, and it like oh, oh. I, I, I'm I'm afraid Sam, I have to tell you, I uh, I looked into that. One of my, one of my big bugbears is um, stories based on concurrent player <laughs> accounts, and uh, it was something like like there were some sites saying like Metal Gear Solid Revengeance players jumped by four hundred percent. And it was like, yeah, because it was 200, <laughs> and now 800 people are playing it. So it's like, yeah, I'm sure there was a little bit of a meme resurgence. As as Matthew was saying, like this game seems to have a, an afterlife that the other Metal Gear Solid games don't quite have. Like it has genuinely got some memes out there that are beyond kind of sliding cardboard boxes. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm not sure the renaissance was um, the rena- what it was promised to be. I... I do feel this is a game that 
deserved a sequel and should have got one and yeah it's kind of going off the beaten path somewhat I'm really sad about the path Platinum have followed ever since Metal Gear Revengeance uh, because they, they were once one of my favourite studios and the stuff they've been turning out recently it's, it's not what they're there for you know it's like Platinum is supposed to be the best this was supposed to be Clover Team lately it's not yeah. been not sure why there hasn't been a Nier Automata sequel, but that's a, that's a question for another podcast. Or a pro- an actual proper cameo game since the Wonderful 101. Well, that was scale-bound. I still regret Julian Benson convincing me not to smash up my Xbox One. Um, I wanted to smash up my Xbox One with an axe when they cancelled Scalebound, just yelling Scalebound like William Wallace. I thought... I th- I thought that would be good content, <laughs> yeah. you know. I can't, I can't, I can't understand why Kotaku UK went down. In there. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but no one on this podcast disagrees with you, Rich. We certainly would all like to have seen that. Um, okay, great. So we come to the final section of this podcast, which is the Metal Gear Solid Five section. So we have one moment from Ground Zeroes here, then four from the Phantom Pain. So, wow, this the opening to Ground Zeroes. So, um. Just really a big tone shift here um, between um, the Metal Gear games previous. There's certainly some continuity, but like you start in what is clearly a kind of Guantanamo Bay style prison camp called um, Camp Omega. Um, you see Chico from Peace Walker kept in in a, in a cage and handed um, a, a Walkman for um, seemingly set, selling out um, Paz, another Peace Walker character. I believe that's right. And then this music starts. This um, this track, um, Joan Baez. Um, uh, I think it's called "Here's Here's to You," and it's um, I believe it's about two anarchists who are like wrongly executed um, in like uh, Italy in the twenties. So there's a certain certainly like um, some uh, an underlying meaning to using that. And then yeah, and then that kind of that starts the game and kind of kicks off the tone of this game and the Phantom Pain combined, which is suddenly things feel a lot more real and a lot nastier. And so I suppose, like, from there, Rich, um, Ground Zero is the, the tone that they established here. Do you think that Kojima was trying to kind of shift away from what um, the kind of, like, the previous Metal Gears had done, or is there some sort of connective tissue here? I think he was definitely trying to push away from the tone. I think the thing about the song that, all, that always struck home to me, uh, particularly when you look at, you know, how Ground Zeroes turns out, which, uh, spoiler alert, is not well, either Paz or Chico. Basically, the story of Ground Zeroes is that yeah, Big Boss does turn up to save them, but it's too late. You know, they've been tortured, uh, abused in uh, some pretty horrific manners, which aligns to how people were treated in Iraq internment camps in Guantanamo, and they're not the same. Uh, You know, he might save them in the physical sense of carrying them out of there, but he can't save them. And I think what Kojima was tuning into with that Baez song, which is quite beautiful, is uh, the futility of it. You know, like, we can all look at injustices and we can all say that shouldn't have happened, but uh, those two guys, I can't remember when they were executed, I think it's the 1930s. Yeah, they can have a beautiful song named after them, they still got executed. Um, And it's kind of this uh, slight sense of futility of um yeah i can make a game about guantanamo bay but it's not going to change the fact guantanamo exists is it like he's always made uh yeah historically adjacent fiction i don't think he ever got quite as close to what precisely was going on you know now stroke then as he did with ground zeros um 
obviously with the Phantom Pain, it's kind of like a rush, the Russian invasion of Afghanistan, which is intended to parallel the American one. I, I think there's a real sense that he's he's grown up with the series, or the series has grown up, and that it's gone beyond its fetishization, excuse my pronunciation, of the military, which is always like, you know, it's one of the big tensions at the heart of Metal Gear, and I've said this before, that, you know, it's, it's a very anti-war series, and Kojima seems to be a very anti-war individual. At the same time, it's absolutely obsessed with the trappings of the military and military hardware, and I think this is the point where he begins to confront some of the modern realities of that. I find Ground Zeroes quite a quite a depressing game, but like I d- I don't consider that a criticism of it. You know, there are lots of movies I love that I would consider quite depressing watches. But there's no sense of heroes here. Like certainly in previous Metal Gear games, you know, in the first one you certainly feel Solid Snake's the hero. In the second one, Snake and Raiden feel like heroes. Third one maybe a bit more ambiguous fourth you still feel like a hero and then here it's like here's here's the brick wall like here's the you know the absolute limit um of what happens to people and the limits of what can be done to change it sparingly cruel this game for sure um matthew do you have a take on ground zeros at the time i was just so taken with it as this sort of mechanical thing that i you know i I don't mean to like undermine the kind of sort of severity of what happens in it but i was like still kind of quite mesmerized by how how fuller it was as an experience i actually played this more intensively than i probably have like any other stretch of of metal gear like even in the phantom pain proper even in this you know this was already shaping into like the best game he had technically made and that was that was what was really really exciting about it um I don't think, because I reviewed it for OXM, and I wasn't, like, dismissive of the story, but I kind of glanced over it. I remember at the time some people gave me a bit of shit for it on Twitter because they were like, oh, you've really, like, you know, what's actually important here is sort of X, Y, Z. And I was like, well, you know. I I think it was okay to also be just excited by, like, a new... Uh, design phase of Kojima. I think um, it becomes easier to tune that uh, the themes out the longer you replay the section because it becomes just like any other game level to you eventually. Yeah, that's, so, that, yeah. that is true. Yeah, yeah. when you're spe- yeah, you're like you're speed running what is basically <laughs> the worst like half hour of this two people's lives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't mean, to, I don't mean to give the the wrong impression. I, I certainly didn't play this the whole way through, kind of weeping about Chico's fate. Um, and you know, it introduced a lot of stuff that just mechanically was so cool at the time um the reflex mode i thought was amazing i also felt you know the the change of voice actor um added an awful lot to it so um david hater was kind of unceremoniously booted to the curb uh in favor of um kiefer he doesn't actually have that many lines Mm. i don't know if he even has more in the phantom pain but like he's really good at the grunts you know, this kind of... Even kept you waiting, huh? He doesn't deliver that in any kind of special way. But there's something particularly about it. And, you know, obviously, again, it's kind of Kojima going meta. It's like you've been, you know, hanging around a long time for the next step in Metal Gear. Well, here we go. I think the thing that, you know, as a game just astonished me about this initially was like, 
when I started playing it, obviously you just run around the map, not caring, and you're like, oh, this isn't that big. And then when you get into it and you're like, that little area with the tents and what you can, the situations you can end up in with the guards, and this idea of a world being built around like density and physical objects and them meaning mm. something. Like, a lot of 3D games still don't have that. You know, they have all the objects and they have all the kind of like apparently sight obscuring stuff, but like, I don't think any of them create that sense of danger of cre- creeping around a bunch of tents while guys walk around them looking for you. It doesn't have any way near as the same AI as Metal Gear Solid, but um, I think playing this over and over again and, and exploring that small space definitely put me in the right head, uh, like mindset to, to really enjoy the Hitman 2016 when that came around. Mm. Like yeah. it felt, you know, it was like, oh, I know this. This is like a space I'm going to get really, really intimate with, like right down to like the, the real specifics of a room in Hitman, like where you place a body can have like huge implications. And there was like a similar thing with this of like, you know, where can I place bodies very specifically so that when this truck drives by in five minutes, it doesn't discover them and things like that. It, it, a similar kind of mania surrounds both of them. I think um, as well, like this is the first time that, you know, one of these games had actually nailed it when it comes to controls. Like, um, where it felt fully in line um, with contemporary shooters, uh, sort of stealth games, action games. It felt it felt like all those pieces had clicked into place. So it was mechanically as sophisticated as, well, more sophisticated than anything. It was like the, the perfect form of Metal Gear as an action stealth game, essentially. So I think that's, that was definitely my response to playing um, mm. Ground Zeroes at the time. Okay, great. Um, so moving on then to The Phantom Pain. So... First one I've got here is um, uh, giving quiet a kill order. So this kind of represents all the NPCs uh, throughout the game, which I think are, with, with the exception of the walker thing, which I never, ever used, um, <laughs> I did really like the um, having uh, the D-Dog and the horse and then uh, <laughs> and then quiet um, as a kind of like uh, sort of ways to interact with the world. But I think like um, it was key for um, sort of like, you know, basically grunting, quiet, and then um, just like, basically her firing off a headshot at someone who you kind of like had, had marked was just a really great bit of um sort of interaction with a kind of like a, a friendly ai just kind mm. of re- that never really lost its appeal even though quiet was a preposterous character in a bikini um so yeah like um kind of represents all those bits really um matthew i'm guessing you had a lot of affection for the the way that um metal gear used these different characters yeah, abs- yeah, absolutely. Like as a just a huge sandbox with like tools that opened up, you know, the the equipment you have and yes, the 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 people you're working with and just how, you know, every half hour it felt like something new was was going into that mix and you could just constantly endlessly kind of, you know, mix all those things up and and see the game in a whole new way. Um I was what I was going to ask earlier actually, very briefly on the subject of quiet. Um, was uh, we mentioned, we talked about this in the boss fight episode, but uh, how you thought the quiet boss fight sniper fight uh, stacked up against the end? It was not as good because uh, she had a, an incredibly obvious glint on her rifle. I also felt it was like one of those moments where I think sometimes he goes back and pays tribute and he does it very effectively. Mm. Like he gives you the same thing again, but in a different combination mm. so you're kind of still satisfied i i kind of felt that was a bit unsatisfying i didn't really like 
quiet at all as a character. Uh, I did quite like her as a as an AI companion because mm. um, she was just so useful. Yeah, probably more useful than she should have been. Like she was overpowered. <laughs> the first thing I did was make sure I bought her a uniform because I could I couldn't stand that aspect of it. Like, Cover yourself up. <laughs> oh, it's just like it's one of those things about Kojima. It's like the photo mode in Metal Gear Four. Like he's just a bit of a perv sometimes, <laughs> and like with Quiet, it's just uncomfortable. <laughs> You know, it's like, like, don't get me wrong, I'm a straight guy, but do I want to see Quiet in the helicopter the entire time with, like, some mo-capped actor, actor's boobs jiggling? Like, <laughs> I think it's a bit, a bit gross. Uh, and it's, it's the one thing about Kojima I just kind of don't have any time for, and I think is aged particularly badly <laughs> yeah. about him. It's like, yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with, like, I don't know, having a pretty girl in your game but sticking her in a brown pants for the entire time it's just like oh and there's those shower scenes as well and you're just like you're just like you know fuck off like who signed off on the budget for this um yeah it's it's a bit too soft porn for me sometimes no, i totally agree quiet is like the worst form of a bad habit as well like it kind of if, if yeah <laughs> great way of yeah. putting it it fluctuates over time but it's this really really immature horniness that has just no value whatsoever um, nothing sexy about it. Anti-sexy. It's just, <laughs> yeah, ridiculous. Um, okay, good. But I agree. Yeah, great AI companion. Anyway, I do like how she kind of scuttles off when you land with her, and then you, she's just there in the background the whole time. Um, next up, uh, Rich is one that you um, suggested, which is killing your own crew. So there is an outbreak that occurs, I think, in Act Two of this game, um, where on on Mother Base, and you are essentially forced to kill the soldiers you have recruited and trained. Do you want to speak to that one a little bit? I'm not going to try and give the exact lore explanation because I'd probably get it wrong, but fundamentally it turns out that the virus you've been fighting against has found its way onto Mother Base and has infected your crew. And all the soldiers you've spent, I don't know, however however many hours accruing at this point, uh, are quarantined. They're put in a special quarantine zone of Mother Base. And I think they're there for, like, it gives you a couple of missions to do while they're in quarantine and you end up coming back they're all just like well if we let them out they'll infect everyone else so you gotta kill them and you have to strap on a respirator go into the quarantine zone and uh while they beg you not to uh execute all the soldiers you have recruited to your one-man army which i think is kind of like I, I I think is kind of the ultimate expression of the big boss character in a way. Like, um, nothing gets in, in the way of the mission. Morality is kind of checked at the door when somebody tells you to do something with enough authority. And it's a horrible sequence. One thing I particularly want to mention about it, and this is about the series in general and even applies to the last quiet thing, is that I think Metal Gear Solid has the best sound effect for a headshot in any video game. It's a horrible, horrible crack. Like, I'm sure a real-life headshot doesn't sound like it at all. I don't know what one does, but um, you get this horrible crack that sounds like basically a hammer going through bone whenever you do a headshot in Metal Gear. You'll get this kind of, like, little fountain of blood out of them. Like, basically, it's made as horrible as possible. And this is a sequence where you walk through. They're all asking you not to shoot them. They've all seen that you've just shot the guy in front of them. And they're not fighting back. So you just walk through, you headshot them one by one. 
and you walk out and the game continues. It's it's just one of the grimmest things I think I've ever done in a game. It was horrible. Kind of the fact my character went through with it, again, it's one of these kind of like, it's not quite the same as the boss, but it's this great moment of complicity where it's like, you know, he's going, oh, you want to finish this game? Here's where the story goes. Go ahead. In a game sense, it's kind of taking away your loot. I hate to express it like that, but it's like, these are all the people you've spent time scoping out with binoculars to make sure they were S rank in engineering or in the kitchen or something like that. Some of them you'll have just picked up, but a lot of them you'll have spent time getting. And yeah, you uh, you kill them all and then you start rebuilding Mother Base. God, I, I don't know how to articulate it, except to say that that stayed with me a lot longer than any of the, you know, giant fire whale diving through the forest moments. Yeah, I do agree with you. There's um, the kind of little bits of story, story that are in this game. Not many of them really land. It's not that kind of game. It is a game about, you know, player-generated moments in the open world, much more so than the traditional Metal Gear Solid long cutscenes and such. So yeah, that's uh, it's, it's great to hear your your sort of take on that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely, definitely lands. It's very different in tone to a lot of the other moments in the game. But I think something great that Dan Dawkins always got in my head about Metal Gear Solid Five: The Phantom Pain is the idea that Act Two is where everything is stripped back, like um, Huey leaves, like uh, he's kind of like exiled from the base, and yeah, there is a sequence where you kill your own soldiers, and then Quiet goes off as well. Like it's a lot of things just leaving you till there's very little left and that feels like a deliberate choice and i think like dan's overall theory is that this relates to um kushima's relationship with konami that's his kind of like broader (laughs) theory on it which i think it might be a stretch but is interesting um and yeah i kind of like this as an example of that of like yeah kind of tying mechanics to a major story moment um okay so the last proper one we've got here there is there is another moment after this is um, the reveal that uh, Venom Snake, the protagonist of the Phantom Pain, is actually the medic who is a character you very, see very briefly in the end of Ground Zeroes. He essentially jumps in to save Big Boss from the um, the explosion that goes off that um, kills uh, Paz in a very nasty twist. Um, and so at the very end of this game, it's essentially revealed that you are this imposter who is sort of self-deluded in a way into be- becoming a kind of replica of big boss and um it's a very kind of obvious cipher for the player character repeats a little bit of the theme well a lot of the theme of what Raiden was about um this moment was quite contentious it really landed for me because i think that i just really love the idea that in this game that was kind of about the choices you make on the battlefield all that's left at the end of it is your character staring back at you and the choices you've made that have led you to that point are what this character is and the actual kind of snake element is all artifice and self-belief um and i just really love that idea and i may be layering uh, maybe projecting a little bit on top of that but i think that kind of is what it's saying but rich really curious for your take on this because you you added a bit to this moment in our in our document um the snake eats its own tail do you want to talk about that it's it's kind of cheesy i guess but um i think uh a lot of the point kojima was making is that uh we project our behaviors onto these kind of characters and put them, you know, as part of their stories. Uh, the point he's making quite forcibly at the end of The Phantom Pain, as you said, uh, is that, you know, at the end of it, you're looking in the mirror and all the decisions you made were your decisions. 
And the last thing that, if you want inverted commas, Big Boss does in this game is uh, put on a tape with the mission reference for the very first Metal Gear on MSX. So at that point you realise that he's just started the series because the very first Metal Gear is Solid Snake being sent to kill the character you play in the Phantom Pain. So it's this very kind of satisfying resolution to me where, yeah, it's like an Ouroboros. You ultimately, at the end of the series, the creator puts all of the responsibility for what's happened onto you, the player, who followed your instructions and did what you were told and has set these events in motion. And at the end of it, you set the entire series in motion. Uh, You invite, and like you say, Big Boss at this stage or you know, the fake big boss, is a very isolated character. And this is the moment where he um, sets up Solid Snake to come and kill him, not realising that Solid Snake will, of course, kill him. And you realise that during the Phantom Pain, you have been building out our heaven, basically. So, to me, that is quite satisfying. There are obviously all sorts of... There's all sorts of narrative nonsense in Metal Gear. There's all sorts of things I just think are beyond the pale... Uh, the liquid arm graft being prime among them. The big boss resurrections, even though I just said I love him. Again, it's ridiculous. But like this is his way of making sense of them. Also reflecting some of it back, of, back on you. And again, in that thing we were talking about with the Metal Gear Solid 4 Return to Shadow Moses earlier, like kind of reminding you the journey you've been on. Like if you've played the original Metal Gear and you kind of see the name of that mission... And that's the last thing you see in the Phantom Pain. You're like, this is the end. Yeah. You know, this is this is where it, you know, all starts again. I think he makes like a slight rod for his own back with Metal Gear Solid Four, though, because I think like the ending that maybe people felt like they didn't get, or the ending they were hoping for, was something like totally explicit, like Returning to Shadow Moses. People would only settle for this game to like explicitly put you in that game first game again dealing with yourself yeah. and that would be that's the, that's like the old that would be the old Kojima way of doing it this is this is one of the most head fucky things about it right it's called the phantom pain uh which is obviously as i'm sure you know a condition where when you've lost a limb you can still feel the limb and what was the reaction to this game like fans spent the entire time and don't get, i i think this is one of the best games of all time and the obsessive Metal Gear fans spent the whole time going, where's Act 3? Where's Act 3? And the only reason they know about Act 3 is because Hideo Kojima himself put it on the special edition disc that they'd done some cutscenes that hadn't been completed for Act 3. So it's like, that's not an accident. That's not a leak. That's like the creator putting something out there do I think he ever intended Metal Gear 5 to have a third act? Maybe at some point. But I also think he put that information out there deliberately because it's about um, like liquid story arcs. So you come across liquid as a child in this game. And yeah, fans spend their whole time obsessing over the fact that he didn't make the liquid arc, which would have led much more neatly into liquid being the villain in Shadow Moses. So yeah, it's like it's one of those things where it's like, how do you how do you thread that needle? How much is creator intention and how much is the audience reacting? Because it's like Kojima is hyper conscious of this stuff. And 
the stuff that started it all off, which the fan base, like, I don't know, they just treat it as if it fell out of the sky, but it's like, no, Kojima gave you this deliberately, and he called his game The Phantom Pain, and you spend the entire time looking at this fucking 10 out of 10 piece of work going, where's that creep? <laughs> mm. Yeah, I think it's a, a nice point. And that like um, that glimpse of quote-unquote Act 3 was only the second most remarkable thing in that uh, DVD when uh, you consider that Matthew Castle appeared on it as well um, in his only IMDb-credited role. But um, <laughs> yes, um, I uh, no, I, I agree that this... The kind of obsession with Act 3 did always bum me out because it did mean that people were just furious with this ending, which they saw as inconclusive, when, like you say, Rich, it is so obviously conclusive. Um, there's a long list of details that explain why there are two big bosses and how each big boss was a different villain of a different original Metal Gear game. Um, so, yeah, and I don't think another mech fight, which is basically what that... that um, a glimpse of Act 3 was promising would have improved this game at all, considering the mech fights were all the poorest bits in this game. Well, it was just Sa- Sahelanthropus again, yeah. wasn't it, in those yeah. cutscenes? I do I do like the design of Sahelanthropus. I do, I do like the spectacle um, of it when you see it. It's pretty pretty amazing. Yeah, the fights are the fights are crap, but it's um it's the most um Evangelion it got, and I think Evangelion is such an in, an influence on this series and how it thought about mechs. Um, That's just because you went for a big Evangelion thing like a couple of years ago. No, seriously, <laughs> it's true. Um, the the whole the whole thing of them being metal and meaty is pure Evangelion. If you look at the way Ray dives off the tanker in Metal Gear Solid Two, that's um, a tribute to Asuka's first appearance in Evangelion. And yes, I am. <laughs> the way the way they bleed is definitely um, that's got Ava all over it. I think. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and Salanthropus is to me that's pure Eva design. But I do enjoy the idea of um, Matthew pushing back on this. That's uh, that's fun. Um, he likes Naruto. Don't listen to him. <laughs> so we have basically come to the end of the podcast. So like um, the last moment we had here was seeing where it all began with hindsight. Metal Gear, Metal Gear Two, Solid Snake. Um, the games that started it all, which we haven't really discussed here. Uh, did you have any kind of like closing point to make here, Rich, that kind of ties it together? I think the nice thing I found uh, in my introduction to the series was Metal Gear Solid, but um, when Metal Gear 3's special edition, which was called Subsistence, came out, uh, it included the first two MSX games. Um, they weren't exactly as they had been originally released. Kojima had done a bit of tidying up, uh, mainly around the script. Uh, he added a babe me- who just has lots of showers. <laughs> <laughs> Um, believe it or not, the names were even worse. The bosses were called... The one I always remember is Machine Gun Kid. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, w- I wonder what he does. Um, the most the most surprising thing to me about this was... Um, so the MSX is like an 8-bit computer, basically. I mean, it's a PC, but it's an 8-bit computer. Um, so if you imagine a NES kind of style game, pretty much like every mechanic that will come up in Metal Gear Solid is like in this top-down game, like, Snake smokes, and you can identify laser beams through it. You can fire a missile and control the missile independently. Um, If the guards see you, they get the little exclamation mark over their head and they go... And also, like every other Metal Gear game, um, the first area is incredibly elaborate and detailed and amazing for a game of its time and then the rest of it is uh, not not so good it's, it's basically what surprised me about it was how many ideas 
he'd later reuse like there's a boss who's in a tank but before him you have to go through a minefield you have to work out your way through a minefield with a mine detector there are trucks and there are cardboard boxes and you can get into a truck in a cardboard box and it'll take you to another area of the game um it's got the codec so like i said earlier like once you get to a certain point in the game big boss phones you and says switch off your msx so it's like Mm. it's really interesting to me that he made this game and god knows uh, a decade later returns to it and there are so many ideas that are there in an incredibly simple form. You know, like the Nikita missile in Metal Gear Solid, when you fire it, it moves into a first-person perspective, so you're guiding a missile in first person, which on PlayStation 1 was just like, my God, they can do this? Like the other games on that platform were like fucking crop. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's mind-blowing. Um, just the fact that he's kind of gone back to his earlier ideas so often and recycled them and made them new with new technology is something I really admire and the fact that the series has this kind of um, I don't know know what you want to call it, it doesn't really have narrative integrity because it's got so much nonsense in it, but the fact that like he ends it starting at the MSX game again, I admire that so much, you know, it's So so many things just kind of go on endlessly and don't really have an ending. I think the arc of Metal Gear Solid under Hideo Kojima is incredibly satisfying. And yeah, it's it's like a shared journey of creator and player that I don't really think I feel that kind of connection. And it may all be in my imagination, but like I don't really feel that connection with any other creator. Mm. Yeah, I think there are like no other real creators who you would talk about as their game in the way that we have here, which is, you know, definitely like there are hundreds of people involved in the creation of many of these games, but like there is just such a specific um, attitude and flavor and, you know, set of influences to them that just speak to what you, you know, what we publicly know about this one man um, on top of the things that we don't know that we learned from his games. So, um, yeah, I think um, I totally see where you're coming from there, Rich. It's Kojima and it's Shutakumi. Those are the two. <laughs> I, I read his um, I read his book recently, um, The Creative Gene. Is it terrible? If you if you know a Hideo Kojima game, this is kind of a Hideo Kojima <laughs> book. It's got some brilliant bits in it and a lot of toss. But um, my favorite bit was that uh, he really liked Taxi Driver. So after he'd seen Taxi Driver at the pictures. He went out and uh, basically got an outfit like Travis Bickle, and just walked around the streets dressed as Travis Bickle. I wish I wish there was some pictures, but you yeah. know, I think that is the message you're meant to take away from that film: is be like <laughs> this guy. Um, so I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad he understood that. <laughs> oh. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Rich. On what has turned out to be it's been such it's been a so, it's like our longest episode ever so you've really <laughs> earned your 40 quid and uh, oh. thank you so much for joining us we really appreciate it maybe it'll stretch to a japanese copy of god <laughs> and apologies to matthew castle who has to edit this um oh no it's a, a treat to, to hear pe- two people who remember this much better than i do oh. uh, going deep on it <laughs> yeah god rich your thoughts on this are yeah, they're 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 ah oh, they're they're just endlessly. I could listen to you endlessly talk about this series. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Well, it um, depends how many forty pounds you've got. <laughs> <laughs> we can negotiate that off air. 
Um, but yes, um, <laughs> thanks so much. And uh, yes, to the um, listeners out there, thank you so much for backing this Patreon. Like a um, our Patreon, patreon.com slash backpagepod. You already know that because you've backed it. But thank you because it allows us to pay Rich for his time. Um, usually we pay Liam Richardson to edit these, but he's gone on holiday this month, so Matthew has to do it. Tough break for Matthew. Um, but yeah, thank you very much for listening, and uh, we'll, be, we'll be back soon. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye bye. <laughs> bye bye, folks. We will we will pay you for your time, Rich. It's like we offer forty quid flat fee to our guests, so you know it's not much, but it's something, you know. I'll be around Matthew's house as soon as recording is finished <laughs> with a cleaver. It's forty pounds or forty pounds of my stuff. Oh right, the Japanese copy of God Hand rears its ugly head once more. <laughs> oh, that's worth more than forty pounds. <laughs> <laughs>